Welcome everybody to episode three of the Infinity Zen podcast. Today we have a special guest. Um, it's not Ryan, um, unfortunately. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so she is a senior at Penn State University. She just recently scored an account executive um, position at a marketing agency in New York. We have the very lovely Alyssa DeLuca with us, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are from, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I'm sure we haven't reached anywhere outside of Hamilton Square, New Jersey yet. But in the event that we score some listeners in Japan, shout out to you guys. I'll send it to my family in France. There you go. <laughs> okay. So, on the ledger today, we um, we actually kind of just came up with this episode uh, impromptu in a sense. We uh, spent a good amount of time trying to discuss about what we might... Uh, talk about on this episode most of them if not all of them are mainly philosophical questions uh, her and I do enjoy a nice uh, intellectual discussion and or debate on certain issues and we try to pick out a bunch of different stuff that not only would be of interest to some people but might also answer some existential questions that people might have um, so we have some practical some theorizing and some rationalization, but we'll get there as we go. So, um, start off easy. How are you? I'm doing well. Just got a good job. Sorry. Graduating. Sorry, I just kicked you. That's okay. <laughs> um, graduating college soon. I can't really ask for more. So, okay. how are you doing? I'm doing good. Waiting on the transfer to Rutgers in the fall. Until then, I'm dealing with the pandemic as everyone else is. It's been a miserable so, experience, to say the least. Most we can do. We can keep drinking our wine. Um, yes, our beautiful de- Riesling. Debating each other and being stuck in the snow. <laughs> so, Yes. Um, full disclosure, I tried to get her to debate me on some political issues, but she wants to um, save that for a different episode uh, in order to gather necessary information. <laughs> um, which is fine. I'm not judging her at all. So... Um, for the most part, like I said, this is going to be more so a uh, discussion and or debate on possibly some of these issues on philosophical existential questions. Um, like I said, some will be practical, some will be um, theorizing, but ultimately uh, you'll get out of this podcast episode what you give. So first question that we decided to, to or not say the answer, but to theorize on, is the matter of how will mankind go extinct? And this is more of a question dealing with, well, is it going to, is mankind going to be the reason for its own extinction? So I would like to open that question up to you. Um, so what do you think? Do you think that mankind will be the blame for its own extinction? You know, we've, we've, briefly kind of had our back and forth over this question and mm. I know how you feel um well don't give it away yet we gotta actually no, bounce I, ideas I off each other <laughs> I know I know um personally I do believe that the end of mankind will be you know a man-made event especially with the way that war is going and the idea that we must kind of transfer over to this utopian society I think will ultimately be our downfall but I know that you disagree with that let me stop you there um, what do you mean by our, we must transfer over to a utopian Not that society? we must transfer over to a utopian society, but I feel like the direction that 
people are going in is they are very optimistic in where we will be transitioning into the future. And I feel that people believe that a utopia is very possible. And Not only possible, that, but also desirable for some people. Right. And you and I have had our conversations about different types of people and cultures coexisting, and if that is a possibility. And ultimately, I feel like that could lead to the downfall of society, just because these kind of characteristics that people are looking for are just unrealistic at this point. Um, would I think it would be great to have a utopian society? Sure, everyone would, but at the end of the day, society wouldn't function in a progressive and positive manner if that were the case. And I think ultimately, when we're trying to reach towards that utopian society, it's inevitable that we're going to have disagreements, and that's where government conflictions happen and war. Um, so I feel like that could be the potential reason for the downfall of society. Okay. Um, now, not to criticize any political um, affiliations, but it's, I would say, a little paradoxical mm. in the sense that you, as you sit here, have Andrew Yang stickers all over your laptop. <laughs> and, I do. And majority of people, and that's not a statistic that's that's me just making my observations. It's very anecdotal evidence, but um, majority of Andrew Yang supporters are usually very utopianistic, and I think it could be argued and quite validly that Andrew Yang himself is a utopianist, someone who would like to see a utopian-style um, society take form in the United States, one that where equity is given. Uh, more prudence over equality in a sense in saying that I mean more so like rather than having equality of outcome we have equality of or I'm sorry rather than having equality of opportunity we have equality of outcome and uh, equality of outcome typically means chopping at the knees of some of someone else to make them shorter to balance out a smaller person so in what sense, and I understand this is kind of going off topic already from the how will mankind go extinct, but I, you know, I think it's very paradoxical that you say that a utopian society will be the downfall of, of mankind, yet the person that, I'm not saying that you supported for president, but at the time, I'm sure during his candidacy, you were very avid of. Right. How do you rationalize that, that mode of thought, that you were, I'm not sure if you recognize at the time that he's a utopianist. For well, me, personally, okay. um, Andrew Yang was someone who looked into the AI, into the statistics, into the graphics of it all. He was a man who stood behind the math of it all, which is something I appreciated. And did he have values of a utopianist? Absolutely. But I had hopes that in, in looking at the math, in looking at the AI behind all of it, he would see that things like that weren't completely realistic. Um, looking at that, and I'm sure that a lot of it made for a great campaign, and I absolutely 100% supported him behind that. Um, but for me personally, the, one of the main reasons that I supported Andrew Yang throughout his whole campaign was because he was a man of math and science. You know, a lot of people work on emotion, and that's not to say that he didn't either. Well, he um, absolutely did. He did, right. But a lot of it was taking the math and science into accountability as well, which is something that I really haven't seen in a long time. 
and I really appreciated that. So not to look past his utopian values, um, but I just feel that he was one of the first candidates I'd seen in a long time that wanted to look at the little details of it all, the math, the science, the AI, what people are saying. He wanted to go into the perspective of a one-on-one with the American society, and that's one of the main reasons that I really liked his campaign. Okay. Um, uh, I mean, again, not to stray too far into politics, but personally, I, I, if I were to have supported a Democratic nominee or candidate, I should say, it would have been Cory Booker because I thought he was the most moderate out of them all. Um, up until his Gail King incident, which I thought was egregious. Um, that's more or less when he lost all of my support. Um, so to, to answer my side of the question, so not to misrepresent your, or not to mischaracterize your stance, you say that mankind will ultimately be the, the reason for its own downfall. Right. I personally don't necessarily see that happening, more so because I believe that mankind is a very corrective um, species you know we, we things happen in extremes and they eventually find an equilibrium and because of that i think that although it could easily be argued that we are at one of our most extremes in all of all of history i think that we're going to find an equilibrium at some point and then things will most likely settle back down into you know how it was i would say minus the counterculture and minus the threat of nuclear war i would say back in the 1970s you know how things were relatively calm for the most part um of course yes you had the the counterculture proceeding and you had the ongoing cold war uh hostilities between cuba russia and the united states and china was even getting involved there but i don't necessarily see even if a nuclear war to break out i'm not even sure if that would decimate all of mankind because i think that all the um all the nuclear powers in the world would likely destroy each other, leaving more undeveloped nations in the rubble. Mm-hmm. But they would also emerge out of it because, you know, no, no one's going to target an undeveloped country in the, you know, in a nuclear war. Then I think those countries will be fine. And sure, the nuclear fallout could arguably reach those countries, but I don't think it would be to the extent where it would make mankind extinct. And I think that nuclear wars probably the most existential threat to mankind in regards to what we could do to each other. But I honestly think that the only way that mankind will go extinct, there's one of two ways. Either an asteroid hits the Earth and it's big enough to cause massive debris to enter the atmosphere and cause a nuclear winter. Or Yellowstone erupts, full supervolcano, or hypervolcano, I should say, uh, style, and that would be what destroys mankind because I think natural disasters is nature's way of correcting, you know, not in the sense that nature can think for itself, but like usually species go extinct at the fall of nature, you know? Right. And of course humans have assisted in making certain species go extinct. Deforestation is a big factor in that. Um, man-made climate change um you know possibly causing polar bears to go extinct at some point but in regards to ourselves i think that the only way that we as a species will go extinct is by way of natural disaster Mm -hmm. and i do agree with you on that but i also think it's a chance of the what-ifs and the chances of it all 
you know, we've already established that I'm very statistics oriented <laughs> and I like to base my worldviews on, on the AI of it all, the, the artificial intelligence and the big data. Um, that's just what I study and that's what I enjoy. Um, so I think when it comes down to the what ifs and the chances, I think with the percentages being higher than zero, I think it could go either way. And I'm interested in hearing why your side of that is you feel that nature could be the downfall of society. And I know you have your your two reasons, but <laughs> go into a little bit on why. Okay. Um, so I there's 7.8 or 7.9, I'm not sure what the exact number is, 7.8 billion people on the planet. I don't think that any one nation is strong enough to wipe out the entirety of mankind unless that was their goal and that would arguably um, that would arguably necessitate wiping themselves out so look at it this way Um, Russia China and the United States are probably the biggest nuclear threats in the world as they have appeared to be the most hostile and most willing to use their nuclear arsenal um, if any one of those nations were to decide to use those nuclear weapons, they would be smart enough, arguably, to wipe out their biggest threat and maintain an allyship with other countries that have a nuclear arsenal. And I don't think that those countries that were the targets of a preemptive attack would be capable of surviving, in a sense. Like, they would most likely hit their nuclear arsenals as well. They would destroy all military capability. I don't think that there's any way, shape, or form that a nuclear war could end civilization and mankind as a species. Um, I just don't think any one nation is powerful enough to do that. I don't even think if all the nations in the world were to launch nuclear weapons at each other, I I simply don't think that it's possible that uh, humanity as a species would go extinct. I just... I don't see that as a possibility, but I, and like I said, I completely see nuclear war as the greatest existential threat to most civilizations in the world, but not to all of them. Humankind would still survive a nuclear war. But, you know, if we think about it like this, um, the science behind a hyper eruption at Yellowstone, uh, and I've watched several documentaries on it, you know, conducted by very renowned scientists and volcanists. And they all say that the totality of a Yellowstone hyper-eruption would be unimaginable, that it would propel tons, millions and millions of tons of hot lava into the atmosphere, and that would rain throughout the world. And then the debris from all the volcanic ash would go up into the atmosphere and block out the sun for years, if not decades. That's not something that that humankind can escape. The biggest problem with nuclear war, and I'm not sure if you agree that nuclear war is the biggest existential threat to most civilizations or not, but the biggest concern when it comes to nuclear weapons is not the potential nuclear winter, as they call it, where uh, ashes and other debris cloud the atmosphere and block out the sun, uh, which causes crops to no longer grow and therefore animals to die and then the food chain is disrupted and most humans die of starvation I don't think that we have enough bombs to do so 
and if we did, most of them would likely fail or um, be destroyed in the process. But the biggest concern usually with nuclear fallout is the nuclear fallout itself, like you know, the radiation. It's the destruction that it can cause into the targeted area. It's not necessarily a matter of, well, how would a bomb going off, say, in Russia, how would that adversely affect the people in India? Because most likely it wouldn't. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's where I get the notion that, well, it's like, again, one of two things. It has to be either Yellowstone, which is my biggest fear, I'm willing to admit. I am more terrified of Yellowstone erupting than I am of an asteroid hitting the Earth. That Both of them scare the hell out of me. But Yellowstone erupting, because of how big of a possibility it is, that's terrifying, <laughs> you know? And then the, the asteroid, you know, that's inevitable. I'm sure we've all seen the science fiction movies about, like, uh, asteroids the size of Texas colliding with the Earth. We've all seen those. But the fact of the matter is, is that it remains a possibility, although extremely less likely than Yellowstone. Um, the, the common denominator between the two is that both of them are not only unavoidable when happening, but are also the most likely to cause the most significant damage and will most likely be um, an extinction event for humankind. Right. And I'm sure for all of life on Earth at that point. Yeah, and, and I'm not trying to say that your argument is null and void in any way. <laughs> it, it is completely rational. Um, however, since we have talked about this many times, I personally only have two fears in my life, and it is A, being average, and B, the unknown. Um, we yeah, often talk showing. about... <laughs> your ego um, showing a little bit, and that's... It is, that's it is. A, that, and saying that one of your biggest fears is the unknown is rich for someone who tries to minimize my fear of the deep ocean. <laughs> right, and I was going to bring, bring that into perspective, because you have a fear of the deep ocean. Yes, as, um, as anyone should. I just interest. Well, you, so that's the thing is you 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 thoroughly enjoy outer space. Oh, I love outer and space. And I love the ocean. And for each of us, it's the opposite that ter- that terrifies each other. You're you're terrified of the ocean. I have a, yeah, a fear of outer space. I don't know what's up there. Well, yeah, we um, don't know why we can see most of it. Right, but seventy percent of our ocean's floor is is, bring, is undiscovered. It's terrifying. To bring it back. To bring it back around and bring it back into what I was saying, um, there just is just so much unknown in the world, you know, and, and there is an unknown for when Yellowstone is going to erupt. There is unknown for, for that percentage of our ocean, which is a big, big number. There could be um, a super volcano underneath the ocean that we don't know about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I don't like that. We're sitting on that shit. Yeah, maybe maybe it'll take us out halfway through this podcast. Who knows? Don't um, say that. <laughs> not going on. It's not. <laughs> um... But for me, it's it's the idea of the unknown and seeing how progressively technology is expanding nowadays, not even going towards nuclear warfare, but just knowing that they, we don't know what a lot of our the other government systems in other countries are doing or what they're planning. You know, it's, it's always that unknown, that unknown aspect where we don't know what people are building. We don't know what success in technology they're having. We don't know. We don't know what they're planning. We don't know what they're doing on the internalized side and, and it's not our business to know you know well um, i mean now not to cut you off but i would say that a country possibly um developing technology that could wipe out a significant portion of the population i do think that is our business to know it is i think it's our business to prevent as it well. is right but when i when i say it's not our business i mean 
it's not our job to go around, hey, let's see what the government in Russia is doing today. What are they building? It's just not something that we really think of, especially on an individual level of, of human beings that aren't in government. Right. Okay. So I would say it's, our, it's the job of the government to do so, but not right. the job of individuals to do so. Right. But okay. I'm saying as an individual, I don't know these things. And thus forth, you know, that unknown for me is, is scary. You know, it, it's as scary to you as, as Yellowstone or the ocean. It's just the unknown that people, you know, m- nature made um, disasters. They don't have an agenda. They just happen. As to on the op- opposite side of that, man made agendas, you know, man made disasters have an agenda. They're doing it solely for the purpose of if I'm going to wipe out a population, I'm going to do it for that purpose. It's not chance and it's not random. It happens for a purpose. And if they want to do that, they're going to build the technology for it. And is it possible? We really don't know. And it's that fear of the unknown that gets me thinking. And, you know, that's the difference for me is is the agenda behind it. If it just happens randomly because the universe said, so be it, let's make a volcano erupt today. (laughs) Or because a separate country has that mindset that they would like to take out another portion of the population. Okay. I mean, like, I don't get me wrong completely see where you're coming from. Um, but, like I said, I, in regards to the practicality of it, because we're... Obviously, like I, like I gave a caveat where we're, we're theorizing, not necessarily practicalizing it. Um, I'm not, I personally don't know the nuclear arsenal of Russia or China or any of the other major... I don't even know our own nuclear arsenal. Right, and I, as on the opposite side of that, I do not know the statistics of, of when Yellowstone is going to erupt. I know it's unknown to pretty much everyone. Sometimes, I, sometimes my paranoia has me looking it up and I'll see what scientists <laughs> are saying. And then, I, and then I'll come across like a freaky article where it's like, they say it's going to erupt any day, and then I'll see other words where it's like, no, like, it's not going to erupt for like a couple hundred, if not thousand years. I'm like, oh, thank God. Right, right. And I think, I think it's, it, all become, it all comes down to that personal level of what scares you, you know? And to a point, there's some bias in it. Um, you have a fear of Yellowstone, and I have a fear of the unknown of what's going on in, in the technological aspects of other countries. Um, I guess it really depends on a person-by-person basis, and that's why we disagree on these topics. But that's kind of every topic, if you really think about it. Yeah. Um, it just comes down to, I think, when you unravel it, in a sense, it comes down to what scares you. Right. And I think that's the question, or that's the answer to the question, is what scares you? And, and if you dig deep enough, you'll find where you think life will end in that. Okay. Completely with that. So it's actually a good segue to our next topic. Um, so... Um, the possibility of nuclear war or man-made existentialism, or not existentialism, but um, extinctionalism, and notwithstanding the possibility of Yellowstone or a giant <laughs> asteroid hitting or a meteor hitting the Earth, <laughs> would you choose immortality? If you were given the option to be mortal or immortal, would you choose the option of immortality and why? I would, and it's a completely selfish decision, and I'll be the first person to admit that. Um... You know, we were also talking about the idea of death scaring people and, and, and should death scare people? And I think the answer is no. I think I think how people are going to die is what scares people. And the unknown behind that, going back to raveling it all in the unknown, people are scared of the unknown. People are scared of, of what's to come. Um, and I think for me personally, I just feel like there's so much life to live. Mm-hmm. And my reasons for choosing immortality would be completely selfish. 
Um, I just see everything in life. I say this a lot. I see everything in life through rose-colored lenses. I think there's beauty and art in everything. Um, I'm just a person who doesn't get bored. I'm, I'm right-brained and weird and creative and I see the art and beauty and everything and to for that opportunity to keep seeing that life and everything that life and beauty and everything even through potentially the downfall of society you know we were having that conversation that sometimes pain causes the great art as well the greatest art pieces as well of course um, if it wasn't for pain I'm sure American Idiot would have never been written by Green Day <laughs> right and there was that um that Ned's Declassified episode where that weird art professor said like it's called painting because there's pain in it um <laughs> Oh <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. The philosophy from philosophy, the Nickelodeon show. Philosophy from Ned's The Classified. <laughs> um, but for my completely selfish reasons, I would choose immortality. You know, I, I think when you look into it, seeing loved ones, and I think that's another question too: is do your loved ones get to be immortal, or is it just you? Like, would you have to watch your loved ones and your friends die? I think that's a, another thing that you have to take into consideration. See, that reminds me a lot of the Twilight Zone episode where that college professor is engaged to one of um, his students, I believe it's one of the students, and um, he's a arguably older man, his fiance is in her early 20s, and her father eventually finds out that he was immortal, that he was granted this by some, uh, I'm not sure if it was a gypsy or from what it was, but like, and he went on this whole thing because the, the old man wanted to be immortal and asked him, you know, how it was accomplished and that he was scared of death. And then the guy who was immortal ultimately says, you know, it's this like life is ultimately tragic when, you know, like immortality does not excuse you from tragedy because you rather than seeing your loved ones die once, you see your loved ones die over and over and over again as you continue to outlive them. And for me personally, that's not a reason why I wouldn't choose immortality. Um, I personally wouldn't choose immortality. Uh, put that out there. My reasons aren't necessarily rational, like rationable. It's more so of like, I'm not sure if if I were to be immortal, if I would be completely okay with that. I'm not sure if I would be able to be comfortable in my own skin after a certain amount of time. And it's not a matter of because, oh, well, I'm seeing other people die. It's more so it's just like, well, if I were granted the awesome gift of immortality, I would feel such an odd balance between pressure and relief that knowing that I have all of this time ahead of me to accomplish, but I would also be paranoid in that, well, what if I waste years doing absolutely nothing and I spend my immortality procrastinating on things and then... Uh, an event happens where I cannot no I can no longer be immortal. And... Not to interrupt you. Go ahead. But I think that's kind of the beauty of immortality is is you have you get to choose the life that you live through it. You get to decide if, if you want to spend some years of your life doing absolutely nothing because in the end you're still going to be living throughout it. And I mean one of the one of the great characteristics of immortality is the inability to age. So when you look at it from an should I do nothing for years, it almost the only thing it really affects is your mental state. But I think it's one of the beautiful things of it is you have that ability to do nothing for years and still make something of your life. You know, when you when you're not Im immortal, 
you can do nothing for years and it'll affect everything. However, when you're immortal, it's just a matter of five years out of eternity. You know, if you say, I want to take these five years to do absolutely nothing, it's five years out of eternity for you. You still then have the opportunity to go out and live to the fullest because you're going to live over and over and over and over. And that's why I find it interesting because, you know, we, we look at these nostalgic historical events and we see them for what they are. And, you know, people people always say, I was born in the wrong decade or I was born in the wrong time period. Um, but I think if people were to have that option of immortality, you would get to keep living throughout it and see the societal changes. You know, I want to see what society is like after I'm gone. I want to see how values and morals change. And even the little things like beauty standards, I just feel that life is going to keep going, you know, and, and there are those factors of like the twilight zone where you keep seeing the people around you die. And then I'm sure immortal people have to come to terms with that if there are <laughs> the, the possibility of immortal people out there. Um, I just think that when you know what decision you're making, you you have to take accountability for all the things going into it. And I think all of those aspects are important, you know, but I think that ability of, of watching the pain and everything is also the beauty of it, just in my perspective. It's a dark beauty. It's, it's um... It's the it's, dying rose, in a sense. Right, and, and for me, and I know you because we are two very similar individuals, the melancholic aspects of it have always interested us. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it would be interesting to see the world through all of those phases, you know, through the happy phases, through the melancholic phases, through the pain, through it all, and just knowing that ultimately life goes on. Right. I don't know. See, for me, like... I guess in a weird way, how I've said before that humans came up with the idea of an afterlife because it can't wrap their head around not existing. I would say that personally, I would reject the opportunity to be immortal because I can't wrap my head around the idea of existing eternally. You know, to me, that's that's why I honestly, in a weird way, hope that there is no afterlife because I don't want like a constant state of consciousness you know what i mean like i think that that kind of weirds me out in a way because at time it's you know like i think that that's hear me out here i think that that's the beauty of mortality though because you recognize as a mortal that life is it has inherent value and is sacred simply because it is limited you know because life is limited that's what gives us the drive not necessarily the drive but that's what makes us want to accomplish so much in arguably such a small amount of time. I mean, the lifespan of human of of the average human in the world right now, I believe, is sixty three years old throughout the world, but it's seventy three in the United States. Thank thanks to you know advances in technology and healthcare and things like that. But still, seventy three Earth years is nothing on the cosmic scale. It is a blip in what the universe does. And secondly, if you think about it, a blip in what the Earth does. The Earth is 4.6 billion years old. And yet humans, the greatest humans and the worst humans, in such a short span of their time, can accomplish so much good or so much bad. You know, I mean, we look at people like, um, uh, I believe it was Edison, who's 
had like 260 something patents in his lifetime and that was back in the day when the life expectancy was about 50 so had he chosen to had he had the opportunity to be immortal who's to say that he would have uh, invented all those great arguably life-saving inventions you know had he been unlimited in his time you know mm-hmm. and I honestly think that mortality is a good driving factor into giving us the ambition to do things quickly and efficiently I believe that mortality is not necessarily a meaning in life but it's like I said it's a driving force because you know if if we were to be immortal as a species and if we were to or even if as individuals if we were to have the option to be immortal I don't think that there would be that driving factor of like time is limited time is precious and therefore I must utilize it to my biggest to my most capable you know I don't think there would be such a driving factor I think it would be more so I have all the time in the world because I am immortal and I can do things on my own agenda and I can uh uh, take my time in a sense with certain things and I understand that certain things do take time I mean think of all the scientific uh, scientific breakthroughs that we've had that literally span generations of scientists you know we, we take uh, Galileo for example you know and his observations of stars and then we throughout the generations determine light speed and then we determine that you know through Galileo's telescope which has taken many forms and as become an insanely revolutionizing invention and as it becomes more and more advanced we get to see deeper and deeper into space-time so I think had Galileo had the option to be immortal I don't think he necessarily would have uh, done what he did and I'm not sure if we would know as much and certain things do have to do have to span across generations because if it you know, it's more so passing the torch than it is about doing it yourself, you know? And that's not to say that you can't do it yourself. I mean, look at some of the world's greatest inventors, you know, Tesla, for example. He um, he was the one who came up with the, elect- the uh, electric grids that power whole cities. So he might have done so in a small uh, contained area, but it's the fact that we literally have power grids throughout the United States, and that's the result of his invention being inspired or being the inspiration behind people coming up with better inventions for it. So I think that that's the beauty of mortality, but people also achieve immortality with what they do. And I think that that's a big component into immortality, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I've already said this, but my, my reasons for personal immortality are selfish. Are, are selfish. They are. <laughs> Um, and I'm not looking at it from a, from a global scale of, of who should and shouldn't be immortality. I'm looking at it from, would I be immortal? And the answer is, yeah, because I would like to see the Edisons and the Galileos and the Teslas of the world, or I guess coming into more modernity, um, the Bill Gates, you know, who's next and who's next after we ultimately die. I would love to see what that atmosphere looks like and, you know, how that causes, you know, we talk about the butterfly effect or how that causes the ripple for times after that and and what really ultimately i i just for me personally i love to learn i just i never want to stop learning i never want to stop growing okay. and my reasons are purely selfish and i will be <laughs> the first to admit that 
Um, but I want to keep learning and I want to keep growing and I want to see which of these people, which of these scientists, which of these, these modern philosophers have an impact on the next society and the one after that and the one after that. I want to see what people learn about the universe, what people learn about society, what people learn about technology after we go, you know, things that we have yet to learn. I want to see what that would look like 10, 20, 100, couple hundred years in advance. You know, that's just something that's always piqued my interest. Yeah, it's understandable. I mean, for me, what really gives me um, a fleeting sense of mortality is, I don't know why I do it to myself, but, you know, like reading about history and seeing the dates of certain events and especially United States history because United States is one of the youngest um, nations in the world, if you think about it, but it's also one of the oldest surviving democracies and governments. Because, um, I mean, think about it, we didn't really discover this land until the... I, I would say that Leif Erikson was the one who like discovered the land outside of <laughs> Europe, and that was probably in the 12, 1300s. So that's super recent, if you think about it, and the amount that we've accomplished in such a short amount of time is, is outstanding. But it gives me a fleeting sense of mortality in that um, all these great people have lived in such a short span of time and have done so much. And it seems as if because of how much they achieved that their life was so short. Like certain figures die at a very young age according to, you know, all matters, all matters being equal. Like, I mean, George Washington, for example, he technically could have lived another 15 years had science been a little more advanced and they wouldn't have bled him to death for having a sore throat <laughs> you know and that's unfortunately how the first president of the united states died and i think that's like what scares me about my mortality is like um the it's the the sheer fact that we really don't have much time on this planet which is good and bad if you think about it i mean there are plenty of people who just are horrible people and die at old ages, and then there are great people who die at young ages. You know, look at look at the Kennedys for the most part. You know, so yes, some could argue that the Kennedys are, uh, you know, <laughs> very uh, Illuminati esque family. But That's a discussion for another day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like you know, you look at some of the greatest people in our history, and you know, a lot of them die very young, which is a shame. And that's like one thing that I fear is. My, my fear isn't my mortality. My fear is dying before I've achieved what I could achieve. I mean, Kennedy was assassinated in his first term, and who knows what he could have achieved in his second term. And arguably, I would say that Kennedy would have been less detrimental to, to American society during the 1960s than was Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, Lyndon B. Johnson was also the one who had the notion of the Great Society, which was very utopianistic. I would say Lyndon B. Johnson was very on par with the Andrew Yang. Um, and JFK was more so the moderate, like, we're just going to, you know, we're going to try to outpace the Russians. We're going to go to space. We're going to try to make peace with Cuba. We're going to try to, sure, yes, the, the Bay of Pigs invasion was extremely disastrous and arguably ignited more of a war than was needed. But I think JFK probably could have achieved a lot more in his second term had he lived to see it, but unfortunately he was uh, taken from us by um, Lee Harvey Oswald. But I don't know. I, I think that the, the mortal aspect of my life is really what 
it scares me in the sense that I'm terrified of not achieving or living up to my potential before I die. But at the same time, it also inspires me because I'm just like, I have a limited amount of time on this planet. What can I do with it? You know? Yeah. And, and that, like I said earlier, I have a genuine fear of being average. And is that egotistical to say <laughs> potentially? <laughs> Very. Um, it, it is. And I, I will be the first to admit that. Um, but that's what gets me up in the morning. You know, it's, it's that knowing that mortality is real and at the end of the day science has not yet discovered the cure for for immortality or or being immortal you know and i wake up every morning knowing what i want to do i want what i want to do is is reach my goals and that kind of fear behind that almost motivates me and it's, it's knowing that if i were immortal potentially would i be less motivated yeah um but those are the things you have to look into with it. But just going back to it, you know, you talk about your fear of living up to your potential. Of not living up to my potential. Not living up to your potential. <laughs> um, of not living up to your potential. And I have that same exact fear, you know, and that's what, that's why I wake up at 7 a.m. every morning. That's why I'm constantly doing things to grow myself as a person, as a businesswoman, as a student, just because I know that that mortality is coming and it's coming quick mm-hmm. and you don't you never know when and that's the thing it's that fear of the unknown and back at it again it's you never know and i say i walk out into the street tomorrow if i'm not an immortal person and i get hit by a bus i would like to know that i at least did everything i could to be the best version of me yeah i have to agree with that yeah so the next question we actually kind of talked about it a little bit well you did at least when discussing your um i wouldn't necessarily say desire but your um your optimism for what would be accomplished for you personally in a state of immortality and seeing how society changes and how things adapt and etc etc so the next question really pertains to to modernity in a sense and I would say it is a question that weighs on a lot of people's minds, more so on a conservative's mind than on a liberal's mind, because it's you worry more about when things appear to be going wrong than you worry when things appear to be going right, even though if the things going right is not as fast as you would like. And, I mean, granted, yes, that's one of the beautiful things about a, um, it's one of the beautiful things about having a republic, is that things don't happen immediately. Things don't happen, um, based off of what the majority wants. There's a lot of checks and balances. There's a lot of, uh, coming to a consensus and compromise, you know? So, do you think, personally that society is headed in the right direction or the wrong direction? I think it depends on what angle you're looking at it from. You know, I... Right, but I mean, for you personally, for what you hold to believe and what you you hold to have value in, do you think that that society is headed in the right or the wrong direction? I would say ours, not necessarily as a global issue or a global matter, but in the United States 
do you think our society in the United States is headed in the right or the wrong direction? When we think of the word consciousness, you know, you and I had that, had that, um, not debate, but that we're gonna, conversation. We're going to ponder consciousness here, huh? Right, we are. Because it, it, it really goes back to what defines consciousness and, and what defines a right or wrong society. You know, and the answer is, I don't really know. I would love to say that I sway one way or the other, but it goes back to that. What defines a society? What makes society progressive? What makes society not work as well as others? I think you have to take all of those things into accountability. I think there are things that society is doing today that work really well. But then again, you know, we, we see all these things that are happening in the U.S. alone. Um and, you know, there's always people thinking, well, if the government did it this way, it would be more progressive and it would be more accountable. Um, but I think it really just, there's so many different angles that you could take on it. And my answer is I truly could go either way. Okay, well, let me, let me prompt the question this way. Okay. What do you think is going right in our society? Not necessarily from our government's perspective, but societal movements, because I would argue that society and government although parallel are not intertwined. I think people are starting to become more aware of the world around them. You know, I think in general, society is very selfish and is very individually driven. Um, I think kindness and being a good person and values go a really, really long way. And whether it be the right action to take those steps or not, people are starting to realize that it's not just all about themselves. You know, there are other people that have to take into accountability. Um, being kind to another person, being smiling at someone you see on the street, you know, that's what I think people are doing right. People are becoming genuinely better people. And is it for the right reasons always? No. Um, but I think certain movements in society today are starting to have people take accountability for the fact that it's not just you or I in this world alone. You know, there are, like we said, 7.8, 7.9 billion people out there. I think for me personally, I'm very big on morals and values and understanding that I am just one person in this world. And when you look at it from the spectrum of being an ant on this earth. Oh, oh so, so, how, no, so has no. the God complex dissolved no, a little bit here? It has not. And, and it will never dissolve. <laughs> but I, think, I am one of 7.8 billion, but I am the one. I am the one, absolutely. Um, and I am the immortal one. <laughs> but when we look on it from that perspective... I think that for me, just morals and values go a long way. And if, if you look on it statistically and historically, people people have always been selfish. I'm selfish. You're selfish. Everyone's selfish to a degree. But when it comes into taking other people into accountability and realizing that the world just doesn't revolve around you, like, yes, I do have a God complex, <laughs> but I'm also aware that the world doesn't revolve around me. In my head, it does. But when we look at, when we look into the reality of the world, it absolutely does not. And I try to be as nice and as kind and as understanding to everyone I meet just because everyone's got a different story. Everyone's, everyone you meet is so unique. And I think that's one of the coolest things about life is you walk out on the street and you are never going to meet anyone like the person you've seen before you. And it's that understanding and that knowledge that that's there is what's kind of, to me, expanding society on a new perspective, you know? Okay. So... You said that certain social movements, um, I w give me an example of what social movements 
Um, and you can name any one. I would probably say like probably keep it more limited to like the last decade because I would say that the last decade has seen the most uh, radical social movements probably since the 1960s. What would you say, what social movements have you seen that are doing things right or advocating for a good change? There was one, and I, I genuinely cannot remember the company that, that started this movement, and it was, I want to say in New York and L.A. and all of those, you know, big, big cities, that campaign where people would stand behind the glass and it just turned them into skeletons rather than people and looking beyond what's, and I, I wouldn't particularly call that a social movement, mm-hmm. but an understanding of, of reality and society. Um so people would stand behind this wall and it would kind of do an x-ray sort of thing where regardless of who you were or what you looked like or how old you were, at the end of the day, it had people realize that we're all just a bunch of skeletons. You know what I mean? <laughs> skeletons in a meat sack. Right, exactly. <laughs> and when you think about that, it, it really kind of humbles a person because it doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. It, it matters who you are. And I think things like that, you know, there are certain social movements that are, are geared towards certain cultures and things like that. And, and people standing up for, for what they believe in. Absolutely. You know, you do what you want to do. And I just, for me, I see things like that where it kind of humbles the world for a second, realizing that, you know, none of us are really special. <laughs> Again, you're, you're making it seem like the, the God complex is kind of... It's absolutely not. <laughs> We're not that but, special, but I am. <laughs> no, I, I don't mean it like that. I, 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 I come to terms with the fact that I have just as much potential as, as you or the person walking past me on the street every day. I feel like you're contradicting yourself. I am not. I am not. I'm looking at it from an individual versus a global standpoint. Um... I when when I <laughs> when I have my ego, it's solely for the purpose of, of motivating myself. You right. know? But understanding that under all this ego and motivation and, and mindset and all of the external things, at the end of the day, you know, it comes down to potential and what you want to do with that potential. Right. Um, I think that's very important. And when those social movements, and, and like I said, I don't really like calling them a social movement because they aren't as big on a scale as other ones. Well, okay, so wait, would you say more so that, uh, I, I feel like I remember seeing that big screen that mm-hmm. you pretty much gave x-rays of people. I, I think that was more of a social experiment per se. Um, right. I mean like but, social movements and like what causes are advocating for, or no, I'm sorry, what movements would you say are advocating for change that you believe is ultimately good? For me personally, um, I have worked in New York City interning for about two years now. You know, I've, I've just secured my first job there. Um, but I work a lot, like I said, I work a lot with the statistics. I work a lot with the data. I work a lot with the AI. So seeing these numbers in front of me and, and watching how people really feel and watching the statistics of it all, I think things like equality, and and think and different numbers when it comes down to wages and equity um how people are born and raised if everyone has the same potential from day one i think those sort of social those sort of based social movements are interesting to look at because i get to look at the numbers behind them and see what fuels these um okay now in saying that in saying that certain movements are advocating for 
equity um, and saying more so of like analyzing like what makes them tick in a mm-hmm. sense, right? Now, oftentimes when it comes to movements that promote equity as opposed to equality, those I would say are the most regressive movements that we could think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand... I understand why people have a desire for people to have an equality of outcome, but there's there's a a, a very there there's a very uh, don't even know how really how to put it. I don't want to say menacing because oftentimes it's not intentional, but there's a very negative latent function of producing equality of outcome, and usually that latent function is the impeding of and trampling on fundamental rights mm-hmm. um and that's and this isn't really to, to become a political discussion on you know like individual freedom and liberty and uh should equality of outcome be valued over equality of opportunity but more so i want to say my question is more geared towards why do you think that certain movements are gaining... Uh, yeah, good, it's a good question to ask. Why do you think that certain movements, based off of things that you've seen and analyzed, why do you think that certain movements have gained as much traction as they have? Even if, regardless of what your opinion is on them, even if they have gained or garnered a good amount of social backlash, so... Um, socialist movements, for example. Um, socialism is becoming a very, very popular political philosophy in the United States. And there, there are entire uh, political action or political action committees dedicated to socialism. So, and socialism used to be a, a thing that people feared to be called, you know, back during the Red Scare in the 1950s with McCarthyism. People were horrified of becoming, of being considered a socialist or a communist. But now it's, it, people wear like a badge of honor. Why do you think that that is becoming more popular? Not only more popular, but more... I would argue that it could be... People almost glorify it to a, to a degree. Okay. Um, and I feel that, especially in such a technology-based society that we live in today, when it comes to these movements, people love to glorify what they see as the positive aspects of them. And I say this a lot, but I feel that today in society, people don't do their research. You know? Of course not. People, people see... It's people sound by use, politics. <laughs> of course. People use Twitter right. as, their, as their only news source. People use TikTok. And, you know, if that's what you would like to do, absolutely. You know, no one is stopping you from doing that. But I think it's important to note that there are so many different outlets for real, real, you know, government-backed and and science-based and and research method resources out there. And I think that people see someone hopping on a trend. They see it as hopping on a trend almost, and they don't really do that that deep dive research that they need to do. You know, it's when certain things, when it's like bandwagoning a a sports team or something, you know, it's (laughs) that superficial level. But when it it comes down to our government and how we function as a society, people aren't doing their research. You know, they see what looks good to them without looking at the really nitty-gritty of it all right just interject there it is worth noting that super bowl sunday is upon us and i am i am dreading the amount of buccaneers jerseys i'm going to be seeing in the mall (laughs) from here on out 
Oh my, I'm not ready for this bandwagon bullshit to start happening. I would like to note that I'm not a big football fan, but I do enjoy NHL, and I am unfortunately a Devils fan, <laughs> so I will never be able to be called a bandwagoner for the life of me. Better than a Trenton Titans fan. <laughs> That's true. And you know, multiple times I've considered switching teams, but I feel like I'm so far in it now. I've spent, what, 21 years being a Devils fan? It's almost like a lifestyle to me. It's like, oh yeah, the Devils <laughs> lost again. It's, 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 it's just a natural thing now. That's how I am with the, Tim- with the Minnesota Timberwolves in basketball. <laughs> I remember I was, talking to Ryan, or I was talking to Ryan and Zach one time, and I think this was at the bar, and they were like, Chin is the only person that I know that is actually a Minnesota Timberwolves fan. And I'm like, you're probably <laughs> never going to meet anyone like me outside of Minneapolis. <laughs> right. And when I remember when I was in high school, I was the biggest fan of Yarmir Yager. And when the, for that for that time period that he was on the Devils, you know, I was in bliss. And did they still lose all the time? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that yeah, that was like when the Minnesota Timberwolves tried to put together a dream team with Kevin Garnett, Latrell right, Sprewell, right, right. Michael Wall, Candy. And, and you know, and the lineup this year is still really good, and they've been able to keep PK Saban. And and I mean, this obviously isn't a sports podcast at this point. Um, or maybe maybe it should be. Oh, no, no, because that's what the minor league witnesses was, and we're trying to avoid that okay. catastrophe. Right, so, so wrapping up, I, um, my point here is that I'm not a bandwagoner, and I love the Devils, and <laughs> they, they're awful, they're terrible, but, but that goes into the, can you, can you bandwagon a societal movement, you know? Oh, you absolutely can. Right, I mean, but it, it depends on where you get your research from, and I, I don't think that Twitter and TikTok and Instagram are substantial. Those little swipe-through things on Instagram, they're great, but you have to do the research yourself. Oh, exactly. You know, and, it, and for Gen Z especially, the younger audiences, you know, and, and I like to argue that I'm right on the cusp of Gen Z and Millennial. I hate being referred to as a Gen Z, and especially, I mean, maybe... It, in early Gen Z hatches a slash late millennial. Well, I, I, well, not to interject. I honestly, not. I'm not sure if it's fair to cat. I, I don't believe in uh, generalizations of a generation. You know what I mean? Right. I don't believe that everybody is inherently bound to the stereotypes of their generation. I mean, uh, the the notion of a conservative Gen Z. I think that that's that's pretty much an oxymoron at that point. I know. Uh, not to not to invoke Bill right. Burr once again like I did the last two podcasts, but he was doing a live podcast and then he was doing um you know fans submit him like reads is what he calls them and it's all like uh, stuff for him to give them advice on or things like that. So this one guy opened up his letter to Bill by saying I'm a millennial man and then Bill laughs and says that's an oxymoron. <laughs> well, yeah. So I in in New York two summers ago I went to a networking event called the Affluent Millennial where they they talked about the buying trends of millennials and I genuinely thought it was very superficial because you know I would say certain person trends are commonplace. I mean right, right, like right. phones but, for example. Um, I just think it was very vague. And don't get me wrong, they made amazing cocktails, and I had a great time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so they catered right to you. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they, they knew their audiences, and that what was be- that's what was beautiful about it, is that they knew what I was looking for as, as the, the quote-unquote young and affluent millennial they were targeting. But when it came down to it, when they were presenting what the young and affluent millennial was, it was such a vague category 
But going back to it, Gen Z is so susceptible to things they see on the internet because that's what they live on. You know, they never had to flip through a newspaper. They never had to turn on news channels when they were younger. They don't know where to look for the right resources. And I think that's partially where we fail as a society because we're not providing the right resources to we educate are, ourselves. We are providing the right resources. However, we are also providing the wrong resources. Right, but also as as a, a passionate marketing major, <laughs> I think that we are not specializing what our target audience is for each resource. You know, I think with the news channels, they're so stuck on it being towards older people and older generations, they're not making it appealing to younger generations. They're not saying, hey, get educated on this. It's fun. They're letting social media take that over. Oh, absolutely. And, I, and I think and I think social media has its ups and downs. I think it's, it's amazing and it's also horrifying. But I think what marketing professionals um, are doing nowadays, they aren't providing the right resources for younger audiences to get properly educated. They're letting TikTok, they're letting Twitter, they're letting Instagram do it. And there's got to be more, you know, because you have to know what you're backing because things like like internet drama and, and different things like that, you have to know all sides before hopping on a trend. Of and course. I, I feel like I feel like especially all of these media sources that are putting out swipeable Instagram posts and TikToks, they're already biased, you know, and that's what I, I don't trust about about social media resources is that they're potentially mostly biased, you know. Oh, absolutely. So. Um, my personal take on this question of whether or not I think right. that society is right. oh no yes, no no please please get into your personal take <laughs> no 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 it's fine um because it's funny that you mentioned um so like how people get information from social media so I'm gonna look up give me one second okay so my personal take on it is I honestly wholeheartedly and have every reason to believe that society is headed in the wrong direction. Um, and the, a good reason why I think this is, again, it kind of piggybacks off of the fact that a lot of people get their information from social media. So I remember back when, in the summertime, when all the Black Lives Matter protests were going on. And I have my views on that, and I'm not going to get into them right now, but I might. Who knows? But I remember the Black Lives Matter, and going back on the bandwagon stuff, that whole movement more or less, I would argue, became a social media trend. Because I remember back when Black Lives Matter first started up as an organization. Because it, it followed the death of Trayvon Martin. It followed the death of Michael Brown and uh, Laquan McDonald. And several other, more than several, unfortunately. But it, it started off as a genuine cause. Like, we want police accountability. That's more of what it was about. It was more so we want... Police wear body cams because we don't. We're tired of the vagueness and the ambiguities that exist in police reports. We're tired of, of the, the um the thin blue line as they call it or the blue wall of silence as they call it. And I completely agree, and that's why I think that we should get rid of police unions. But one thing, one common page that kept showing up on people's Instagram stories throughout the summer was this. They identify themselves as a clothing brand, which I think is a little odd. So it's called Change, and I think it's it's spelled C H N G E. So a common thing that I noticed about the page was that they would post, and they're they're blue check marks on Instagram. Means that Instagram views them as an official. Uh, 
I understand that they identify as a clothing brand, but they're definitely a political activist page. But Instagram and Facebook, they, they identify them as to be legitimate sources. So a blue check mark, as anyone could really understand, is the fact that, especially on Twitter, because Twitter was a company that really started with blue check marks, it shows that it's a verifiable source. People mistake a blue check mark for legitimacy, in a sense. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And the the problems that I have with many of their posts was that these posts took aim at certain social hot button topics and really instilled further polarization because it garnered a lot of angry response. Not in the sense that they're angry against what the post was saying, but more so that they were angry about what the post was saying. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and I, not to interrupt, no, but I think it's important to realize, you know, hypocritically enough, I saw this on Twitter once where these two girls were under fire for their text getting leaked of, hey, what do you want to wear to this Black Lives Matter protest? Hey, let's do a photo shoot at the Black Lives Matter protest. And I think that's where it starts to, where people see it as a social media trend and they're not, like, certain people don't look at it for what it really is and it's a movement, you know? Well, so I will touch on my, my stance on Black Lives Matter. When it first started up in 2013, I was 100% for it because I genuinely thought that uh, the fact that police lacked accountability, that there was qualified immunity, um, that there was a lack of transparency in police reports, I, I genuinely thought that it was, it was for a good cause. But one thing that I've noticed is that Black Lives Matter as a movement, not as a sentiment, as a movement, I want to make that abundantly clear, the Black Lives Matter organization has become very antithetical to what it originally started off as. Because it doesn't take a magnifying glass to read between the lines of their message when the organizers of the entire organization literally identify themselves as, quote, trained Marxists. And they ultimately advocate for much more than police accountability. Black Lives Matter has began to advocate for um, destruction of the family unit. They believe in communal child rearing as opposed to uh, parental child rearing. So uh, this became a very popular sentiment on Twitter for a little bit, right before George Floyd happened. And a lot of people were saying, no, we need to have children be raised by the community, not just by the parents. And I was just like, I, to me, I don't understand how in any sense that that's supposed to be beneficial. And I don't see how that should be implemented as a policy for one thing and to say that while it couldn't be implemented as a policy it would just be implemented as a social institution i understand but when black lives matter is more of a political entity than anything they're ultimately advocating for policy change and that's where defund the police came into effect and that's where and might i remind you that defund the police started off as abolish the police and when that not only failed to gain traction, but more so garnered backlash. They changed it to defund the police. So one thing about this organization change, right? They posted so many different, like, poorly made slides that was like a pseudo PowerPoint, like trying to redefine racism. And they ultimately were saying to be racist, it requires you to have some type of 
social or institutional power over another group of people to marginalize them. But by definition, racism is just having prejudice and stereotypical or sorry, stereotypes, negative stereotypes about another race based off of that race alone. Ultimately, what change was trying to do with with that post was perpetuate the notion that if you're not white, you can't be racist because you're, you don't have a systemic power over other people. And just because the United States is majority white, which is drastically changing in numbers by the day, that not only can't you be racist if you're not white, it is impossible for you to ever be racist unless you are in some form of power, which I think is odd because as far as I know, racism is defined on an individual basis. It's defined by your personal perspective of other people based off of their skin color or their national origin. So it's never been a logical inconsistency to say that a black person can be racist against white people or that Chinese people can be racist against Spanish people, or Indians can be racist against uh, whatever race there is. You know, like, Indians can't be racist against Middle Easterns. Like, to me, that's never been logically consistent, you know, to say that. And when you're trying to perpetuate the notion that only one group of people can be racist, and the qualifying factor to be that group of people is to be a majority or to be... Uh, mostly in power in an institution and system of power I think that that's that's an absurdity so the fact of the matter was that I saw that post everywhere every single person that posted pictures of themselves at Black Lives Matter movements even white people themselves were ultimately spreading this I don't want to necessarily call it propaganda because I don't necessarily think that that's their intention I don't think it's their intention to manipulate people I think that they're just, they honestly think that this is what racism means. I think that they honestly think that this is what constitutes being a racist. You know what I mean? So, in saying that the United States is heading in the wrong direction, it's the sheer fact that not only do non-white people believe that, white people are starting to believe that. So white people are going to be starting to become, I don't want to say starting to become the victims, because racism is racism no matter who's perpetuating it. You know, if you're white uh, experiencing racism from an Asian or a black or whatever, that's you're still the victim of racism. It doesn't matter whether or not uh, you have more quote-unquote representation in our government, in our systems of power. The, the fact of the matter is, is that you are a victim of, of a racist, of a racist, you know? Yeah. And you might disagree with me here, so I'm ready I to think, hear I it. I think we are going off topic a little bit. Well, um, I mean, I'm, I'm still more or less talking about... Right, but I feel like we also have we have a bunch of other topics to hit. So so wrapping it back up to the question at hand, is society going in the right or wrong direction? We're so technology-based, and I, as you were speaking, I thought of an example. A lot of my family lives in France, mm-hmm. and... For me to understand what is happening in, you know, when you when you look at the local news, you see what's happening in your area. It's not as easy for me to look at what's happening in Bordeaux and look at what's happening with my family. And I like to keep tabs on what the French government is doing. You know, I, I love keeping, I love studying both the U.S. and the French government. I like knowing what's going to happen to my family. I like knowing what my family is going through. I, I speak to them all the time and, and I want to know what government is is like two but unfortunately one of the the 
sole resources I have is social media. And it's so hard for me to find a non-biased resource. And I have my opinions on Macron. And, um, and I, I just, I feel like when we're living in a society... We live in a society. We live in a society, <laughs> we do. Um, I think there are many aspects where society is going in the right direction with kindness and understanding and just being good people. But I think so many things are biased nowadays, right. especially in, in media resources. So I, it's taken me so long to find actual re- news resources for French government that aren't biased that I, I can understand without having, a, a t- having to take a side. And that's just one example. And, and it, it really is interesting to look at it from an outsider perspective because is, is media is social media, and I don't even want to call it social media because social media is our media. It is how we intake our media nowadays. It, it's yes. from primary, primary audiences. We don't look at the news. We don't look at newspapers anymore. We look at social media. So social media has essentially become media. Which is a shame, a deep shame. Right. But it, we, I start to look at that, and I wonder, is that what will lead to another potential downfall of society is is not being well informed enough, you know, not knowing where to find your resources or not having the right aspects to look right. forward to. So now in regards to that matter of like people more or less uh, citing non-reputable sources, would you say that there is um, an injunction, or not an injunction, but a, an, uh, an intertwining, would you say, of mis and disinformation? Absolutely. Um, like I said, it just comes down to knowing what your resources are and doing the research yourself. You know, there. If you look at the internet, there are there are so many, there are millions and billions of things on there, and just secluding yourself to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. You know, and it's so easy to just click share, perpetuate. And I, like we said, we don't want to call it propaganda because there's no malintention behind it. It's just it's, we gen like they genuinely believe that this is true. Right, and it, it, it's so easy because it's it's as easy as you can look at a. Um, a title for a news article not even read it it could be something completely different but you just see it the average human attention span for social media is three seconds so which is weird because the average human attention span for anything is like two and a half seconds i think right, right? So it's, it, yeah so but when when it, so you get an extra half a second with social media but if, if it's not something eye-catching people don't want to look at it so that's when it comes down to the fact that new york times i know they're under fire a lot now um, just any sort of news outlet that, that just mass posts articles on Twitter or Facebook or wherever it may be, they're not looking to get resources out there for people to do their own research. They're looking to get a catchy headline. They're going to get clicks. Right. They don't people, and that's and that's what's so sad about it is people don't want to educate. They want the clicks. They want the press. They want people to talk about it. At, at this point, and it's always been that way. Any press is good press, but especially when it comes to social media or just media in general. People don't want to educate the public, and I think that's one of our biggest downfalls right now, is they're not providing us with resources, especially as, as younger generations who are so susceptible to anything, mm-hmm. who really need to learn, and who don't have the proper, who aren't being guided to the proper resources right now. And I just think it, it's, it's so sad that people really just want attention more than they want to educate the world. and. And I think there are many ways where we're becoming a, a greater society, but when it comes down to the misinformation that's often being spread, it's it's so, I mean, as a, as a part-time journalist and 
a research nerd and a, and a data fanatic and a marketing expert, it's almost infuriating to me because I spend so much time on the inside looking at all of these things, but someone... <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm not even drunk. No. Oh, phone down. Um, Anyways, I think, I think that's the, the universe trying to tell that's, me that's 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 down. yeah. It's it's time. I think that's the universe telling us we need to move on. <laughs> However, like I said, I think it's so sad that there are so many resources in the world, and me as a data nerd, me as a statistics fanatic, I I do all the research on these things, and I I love it. It it it's one of those things that just keeps my mind energized and keeps me going. But the fact that Someone can, can create a catchy headline and undermine everything I'm saying in a span of three seconds, especially for, for younger generations who don't know what to believe and who aren't being guided in the right direction. It, it's infuriating. And so I see the, the wrong direction of our society being several things. Um, I would say in many ways we're kind of going back to our segregationist ways in the sense that rather than it being Jim Crow laws. I'm not sure, I don't think that there's gonna be any perpetuation or implementation of laws that legally segregate whites from blacks, but socially speaking, we're becoming very, very divided on racial lines to a point where there's a lot of white guilt in the world, where there's a lot of uh, people who are white. I'm not saying there's, I don't think that someone should ever be proud of their skin color. I think that's a weird thing to be proud of you know something that you're born with by by natural causation as opposed to something that you achieved yourself i understand being proud of your heritage and culture though right and it's weird that like white pride gets such a bad rap whereas black pride doesn't i'm not i'm not trying to say you know like one is better than the other all i'm trying to say is, is it's just just a weird paradox um but one thing for me, it's a matter of like, we're becoming ever more divided on racial lines. We're becoming ever more divided on, on political lines. Rather than being a nation of, not necessarily consensus, but compromise, we are, it's, we're becoming a nation of like, it's my way or the highway. It's a matter of who's in power. You know, Democrats right now control the House and the Senate and the presidency. The only thing they technically don't control is the Supreme Court. So that's two out of three checks and balances that are no longer uh, t- technically keeping a check on each other, you know, because anything that the president wants to do, the, the Congress is going to do and vice versa. So I think that we're really heading in the wrong direction in the sense that we're not ever compromising anymore, you know, and even when the Republicans were in Congress and the, pre- and the executive and in the Supreme Court, really nothing a whole lot got done because of how much division there was, even within parties of themselves, because it really... I mean, I'm not sure when the last time you ever watched a, a Senate debate on the floor was. It's been a bit. Right. So I, I watched a few of them um, last time the Senate was in session before that whole debacle at the, the Capitol on the 6th of, Jan- of January. And it, it, actually, matter of fact, on that day, I was watching it. Um, right before the, the Capitol got breached and... Uh, chaos unfolded for several hours these were i don't want to say i don't believe that the election was fraudulent in any way shape or form but the points that certain congress members were making were relatively valid 
to the extent that, like, you know, they're saying, well, any any sign of voter fraud should be uh, looked into because we can't just minimize the, the adverse effects of voter fraud, right? And some of them were attempting to make good points on it. But the problem was the fact that if they were trying to make good points on it, they failed in trying to actually debate it. They failed in trying to say, well, we're not 100% sure, we just want to talk about it. Rather than saying that, they were like, no, there absolutely was voter fraud and we're going to stop this, stop this confirmation process. That's where the problem was. And that's where Congress usually reaches a stalemate. It's because of the fact that it's like, well, it's either my way or the highway and that's on both sides. You know what I mean? Like both parties perpetuate that. And we're really going from the Senate being the best deliberative body in the world to the Senate merely being a center for partisan talking points and just whoever's in power is ultimately going to get the result. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that's where I really stand on it. Like, I think that there's such a deep divide in the United States that isn't being healed and it's not being narrowed in any way, shape, or form. I think it's actually being uh, stoked even further by the rhetoric of not only the vice president, but the president himself, um, by the people in Congress, by political activists, and by people who honestly think that certain causes are out there using euphemistic headlines and slogans that they're actually perpetuating a message of change in a positive light you know like when people are trying to say that well defund the police doesn't actually mean defund the police it means taking money that the police gets and putting it to more social programs you know what i mean whereas if they genuinely wanted to get everybody on the on board they would have said demilitarize the police because nobody agrees with police militarization, but fifty plus people or fifty percent plus people disagree with defunding the police as a whole. So, th- like that's that's where I'm getting it from. You know, it's a matter of like, like what are these movements actually calling for? What are these movements actually advocating for in their pursuit of quote unquote positive change? Right, and I think that's where we pose the question to the listener, <laughs> to whoever may be listening to. Oh, you just want me to shut up. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what am I saying no, that's no, so wrong? No, 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 you're not what saying What am I saying wrong. that's you're so wrong? Saying, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'd like to pose the question to whoever listening, you know, what what do you believe? Take time to think about it, oh, you know? So you want to open the floor to subjectivity. Sure, if that's mm. what you want to call it. <laughs> I'm just saying that at the end of the day, form your own opinions, do your research. I'm not saying that you're not doing your research. I'm saying you did your research and you're able to form this opinion. I did my research and I was able to form my opinion. I just think at the end of the day, the biggest thing we could take about it, take away from it, from being a right or wrong society is research. Okay. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm all for research. I love research. I'm a research nerd. I love data. Um, but that's the biggest takeaway from it. For me, at least. Okay. That's fair. Shall we segue, or...? Oh, uh, I just want to... Okay. I just want to <laughs> reinforce my, my statement that the course that we are on right now, that has been developing and manifesting for the past five years, is bringing us ever faster to a collision course with catastrophe. And that's why I think that society's headed in the wrong direction. It's not too late to reverse it, but that's where we're headed right now. 
100 percent nice <laughs> <laughs> okay so speaking of which let's, let's talk about a little positive manner. uh this question i guess is prompted in a weird way um so I think the question that you proposed initially was like, what like what is the potential for humans? As in like, what is the potential for us like on an individual matter? Right. Now I thought it'd be more productive if we talked about well, what is the potential for human society? What is the potential? Like, what are we as a as a what are we as a society? capable of achieving i think that every single human being is born with potential and for everyone potential has a different meaning and i don't want to say there's equality and potential you know people are born into many different circumstances which you know there are people like the kardashians who are just born into i mean i don't really follow the kardashians or know much about them but i i know that they were born into money and and because solely for that reason actually funny enough they weren't born into money per se, but the, that's the, the way that they have. The, the Jenners were. Yes. 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 The Kardashians not so much because they were like Rob Kardashian, the lawyer, right. was a struggling attorney at the time. Right. But I think I think there are different barriers to entry for potential at this point. You know, it's it's almost like potential is becoming monopolized. Um, but that doesn't take away from the fact that I believe. Even if it's the tiniest little smidge, everyone is born with some sort of potential. And I think as a society, we should take advantage of that, you know? And like I said, I'll say it a million times again, I'm so scared of of being just average. We get it. Oh, I know, me too. <laughs> no, but I'm saying that I was I was a person who was born with, with, I would like to argue, not a strong amount of potential. But I was able to catch that and realize it. And I, I wanted to do more. I wanted to be the best version of myself. And and I think once I came to that realization, I was able to really take accountability for that. And I think, I think it's a big ego thing too. Not my ego, but... Really? <laughs> no, really now? No, no. Really now? Not my ego, but, but coming to the realization that maybe you're not comfortable with your life right now. And, and what can you do to to get on the track that you want to be. And I think that's where society's at, you know? I think everyone has this potential. And I think there's different levels of it that we're all born into different circumstances. But I think it's it's knowing what your potential is and knowing what society, society's potential is and how we figure out how to get there, you know? Okay, so, so you look at it more so from like the individual aspect where it's like, well, what can I as an individual achieve in my lifetime that will benefit society? Right. Okay, I get that. Um, so in, in saying that, what do you think human beings are are capable of achieving of if they were to uh, manifest and perpetuate everybody's greatest abilities? I think, first of all, a great economy. <laughs> <laughs> if we're looking at it from that standpoint, because it, it all comes down to work ethic, what you know, personal mindset, you know, what everyone believes they can do, both on the individual and societal level as a group. But I think it's unlocking that consciousness that, you know, working together as a society provides great benefits, you know, not just on an economic scale, but but understanding each other and, and having, you know, that 
these debates, you know, you and I debate a lot. Yes. <laughs> um, we have many things in common. We have many things that we disagree on. However, you and I are both capable of knowing that disagreeing and arguing are two separate things. And I think that's one thing that society hasn't come to terms yet because people are so offended that people don't agree with their views. And once, once you live up to your potential of, of knowing, you know what, it's not everyone's going to agree, but having these conversations and coming to a compromisation for the, for the benefit of everyone is really, really cool. And, and I guess, and, and once again, not to attack your character, but you know, I want to say it was probably about 90 fellow Andrew Yang supporters of yours that were telling me to kill myself because I disagree with UBI. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. But there's, those are different aspects, you know? Like I, of, of which I was not offended, quite frankly. I found it humorous. Um, Humanity first, my ass. <laughs> and that's why I think it's interesting to see the different types of supporters of, of political leaders. You know, there, there are ones like myself who who don't really agree with the utopian society. And, and even though that may be the, the motive that's being perpetuated... Um, tell me to follow people. <laughs> well, because then, you follow this person, follow them. I'm like, no! <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, because that's the motive that's being perfected, per, perpetuated, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that political figures, it, it's, when they have these followers, they're kind of just put into one little category at this point, you know? Like, I'm... I'm I, I don't agree with utopianism, and I, I think once Andrew Yang ran the numbers and, and realized that, it, it kind of became more of a humbling thing. Um, and you may not have had the best experience with Andrew Yang supporters, and I, my deepest apologies. I, <laughs> I don't really care. Um, but I think it's, it's understanding what your potential is on an individual level and then what your potential is in society as a whole. You know, understanding that you're not going to agree with everyone. You're not going to have the same journey as everyone, and that's okay. It's, it's understanding that your journey is unique, and it's going to benefit others. Okay. And maybe that's optimistic. Maybe it is. I just think, I think the economy, the, the local government system, if people were okay with disagreeing rather than taking such offense to it and making it this, this almost, not I want to say murder spree, but this... Well, this is where cancel culture comes into play. Right, and it, it's, it's solely, I feel like cancel culture has become so normalized in society that people can get canceled for just disagreeing with someone, and I don't, I don't agree with, you know, disagreeing over these really, really deep topics. However, I think that if we're looking at political standpoints and, and just things on a really, very superficial level, like utopianism, you know, we, I don't agree with utopianism, and, and the next Andrew Yang supporter might. And most of them do. Most of them do. And then I have to also look at the different political parties and realize that a lot of them and I don't agree. Um, but that's for the best, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's where we as a society kind of come into full potential is realizing that the world doesn't revolve around us. And it's an interesting aspect because I think we're starting to get there. And that's why I think we're starting to move in the right, right direction as a society, but we're not quite there yet. Okay. Um, so quite frankly, like, you, you take a very realistic approach saying that, like, you know, if, if everyone were to actualize their full potential and on an individual basis, that uh, society would m- likely be in a much better place. And yeah, to an extent, yeah, I can agree with that. 
personally, I'm not 100 percent sure exactly how. Uh, I'm not saying I'm not trying to discredit your argument, but like personally, I just don't know how society would utilize everyone maximizing their full potential. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure because because everyone's potential is arguably different. Um, I'm not 100 percent sure how society would take all those differences and, and capitalize on them in the most beneficial way. And um, I'm not a utilitarianist by any means. But um, if we were to try to actualize and realize everyone's fullest potential, I think that it would be more of a utilitarian approach. Um, I, so I'm not sure what the potential for society would be in that sense. I think that society should have certain goals that it should strive for. Um, mostly focused on ensuring that everybody has equality of opportunity. That's a big one. Um, ensuring that people are living as long as they possibly can. I think that's a big one. So like curing disease for, for one. That's that's a big goal. You know, like finding a cure for cancer would be amazing and it would take countless of countless of numbers of, of uh, scientists and doctors to to come up with that and devise it. And we still haven't achieved it yet, unfortunately, but I think potentially we have the we have the potential to do that. You know, I think we have the potential to cure cancer. I think we have the potential to expand the human lifespan to, to over a hundred years old or expected life or life expectancy I should say. Um I think we have the the uh, potential to increase the level of, of social mobility so that more people can be lifted out of poverty. And granted, yes, the United States has the highest level of social mobility in the world. You know, people fluctuate from poverty to, to average wealth to above average wealth and sometimes back down to average wealth and sometimes, unfortunately, back into poverty. But that, that's the beauty of a free market system is that you have the potential to do that. You know, there's no caste system where it's like, well, you're doomed to whatever you were born into forever. You know what I mean? Like, even the Kardashians and the Jenners are completely capable of becoming poor. <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, even though it's very unlikely, it's possible. All they have to do is just spend all their money and just make bad names for themselves. But some people like to argue that bad publicity is good publicity. <laughs> you know? But, you know, you know... When it comes to potential, I think that there's a lot of potential in our society. I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of things that we're capable of. We're capable of more than we think we are. You know, like the fact that we were able to come up with a COVID vaccine in such a record amount of time. Right. That's insane. And I just saw a, a statistical graph the other day. I think yesterday, or two days ago, saying that more people have been vaccinated with the COVID vaccine. Then I've contracted COVID, and that was over a course of six weeks, which is insane. Mm-hmm. The things that we're capable of when we actually work together and devise plans for it. Oh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, exactly. And COVID is arguably one of the most contagious diseases that we know of. Right, and it's almost a shame that it, it takes a pandemic for us to come into these realizations sometimes. And right. it, and I'm not saying the pandemic is a good thing by any means, but we well, it might be. Because it might revolutionize medicine. Right. And it, it's that understanding that we can come together as a society. We can come together to protect each other by wearing masks or social distancing. But also understanding that there are people who study science and who know these things better than, than we do. Who, who find our information on, on Twitter and, and Instagram. Going back to that. 
Um, but I just think it's, I think it's so interesting seeing these moments, you know, when, when everyone's kind of in the same position, how we can come together as a society to utilize its full benefits. I think that's amazing. Of course. Yeah. And I, it's, it's one of those things that gives me like hope in humanity where it's like, you know, like this is what we're capable of when we actually put aside our differences and come together and like not necessarily put aside our differences but like utilize our differences to have disagreements on certain things and usually disagreement is what leads to consensus and usually consensus produces the best outcome you know if, if it weren't for the extreme differences between the federalists and, and the anti-federalists back when the constitution was being drafted we wouldn't have our that our, our incredible system of government the, the system of government that other countries use as a blueprint for theirs when they wanted to start a democracy or a republic so because if, if it really came down to polarization the constitution arguably would have never been drafted nor ratified and we probably would have had a centralized government or a completely federalist government or i'm sorry anti-federalist government and you know that probably would have produced a horrible result but the things that we're capable of in a society, it's its immense. And I think that oftentimes it takes empathy more so than polarization to, to achieve that. And I think that it's something that we have to learn as a younger generation of people with very uh, hardened positions and very opinionated minds. But I think we're going to get there. You know, I think that yeah. that's our potential is, is if we eventually learn to accept each other's differences and work with it. I think that that's what's going to get us in the right direction. Right. And I, I think things like the pandemic, it's so unfortunate that so many lives were lost, you uh, know, but yeah. but like we said, it, it's something that could revolutionize medicine. It's something that as a society for the first time in years, we were all put in the same position. And that's so rare, especially not even on a societal level, but on a global level, um, realizing that, you know, at the end of the day, yes, some people are, are more privileged with money and things like that, but we're all in the same position right now. And coming together as a society for the betterment of everyone else is important, you know? Going, wearing a mask, social distancing, and, and even going beyond the pandemic, these things, once we realize that society is capable of doing so much, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's almost uncomprehendable of, of the potential of society, and it, I feel like a lot of us don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's one of those things where you wish that everyone could just come into this consciousness of, of the potential of society beyond a pandemic. But that is borderline going into utopian again. <laughs> um, and it, it, it's just a very interesting concept seeing what the world is capable of when we're all put in the same position. You know, who's handling what differently? Who's coming together? Who's who's being ripped apart because of it. And it, it, those are things that we really need to take into consideration and and not even on a societal or local level, just on a global level, understanding each other and, and having those those differences, but also those similarities, you know? Yeah, And it's just, it's, it's interesting to see people living up to their full potential as a society nowadays. And it makes you wonder, you know, why didn't we do this before? Why can't <laughs> we do this after? Right, right. Um... I think I think we definitely can. I think we definitely should. Um, I I've said it before. I think we all have more common than we have uh, in conflict. You know, I think 
we often agree. The thing is, like, and I remember answering one of these questions about so someone expressed their concerns about like how deeply divided like the whole country is, this that, whatever. And I said, well, if you think about it, we all have the same thing in common. We all want what's better for the country, and the majority of the time, we often agree on what outcome we want for the country, and for the world, for that matter. The only thing we really disagree on is how to get there. So if we were to like all have our disagreements about how to get there and then come to a, a compromise for it, like that, it's it's gonna get us fat, get us there faster than just simply disagreeing and just never working on it, you know. So yeah. I think that that's you know that's how we're gonna get there. Uh, all right. So next next segment. <laughs> this will be a fun one. It's actually one that we agree on, seemingly. I can't remember what it is. Sex work. Hmm. <laughs> Are you feeling up to it? Yeah. It's like, it's like you're dozing off a little bit. One. <laughs> I could talk for hours, though. Okay. Hey, fine by me. All right. So, um, I'll let you, I'll let you lead into the topic a little bit. You know, what other people do is absolutely none of my business. I'll start there. I believe in what my life is and what I do as an individual. And I don't really care what anyone else does. It's not my business. It's not my my you know my what's the word i'm thinking of it's, it's not my job it's not your prerogative right no i don't i don't care what anyone else does you know um especially with the, the growing aspect of only fans you know when only fans first came out i want to say the average monthly income was around four thousand to forty thousand which is a big number. That's a big gap in average. <laughs> well, yes. So it is a big gap in average, but the, the people making in the lower end of the scale are making about four thousand a month. People which in the is upper still end, good. <laughs> which is still which is still a great salary. Um, but I think nowadays, um, nowadays I want to say people can on the lower end average about twenty three dollars a month, which I, I remember reading because it's such a saturated market, um, where. I find conflict is I I think when the markets before that are, are undersaturated where people can make upwards of forty thousand dollars a month I think um, it needs some regulation and I could be wrong I, there could definitely be some regulation in it already that I don't know of um, I know but they're I trying to limit the celebrity presence on OnlyFans right absolutely but I think for me as someone who studied who studied extremely hard for four years in college and, and finally just landed my first job. And I've done all of these things where I'm progressively trying to, you know, make sure my career is set, make sure I'm set as an individual. I think the difference, I don't want to say anything to, to sound triggering, but... Oh, no, no, no. no. We, we don't care about this on this podcast, okay? okay? We don't okay. care about your feelings. We care about the facts. Okay. I think I think for me personally someone who hasn't really worked as hard as I have, and that's okay, you know, if, if, if college isn't your thing, if, if it is your thing and you want to do an OnlyFans on the side, sure, like I said, it's not my business, but when it's your only source of income and I'm working super hard day and night, you know, I've had sleepless nights for about six years now after in high school realizing what I wanted to do with my life and living up to that potential, you know, I, 
I had to wake up at three o'clock every morning, take a train to New York every single day to make to make a living. And, and you were doing that pro bono as an intern, right? And after for a while, I was I was doing that pro bono before they they started giving me a salary. I was doing that for free. So to see the difference in I don't want to say work ethic. Work ethic isn't the right word, but the difference in in getting the same salary, but difference in what we're doing. What you're putting as, into it. Right. I'm putting my entire life and soul into my job. Of course. And I'm getting a similar outcome, you know, as, as people on OnlyFans. And, and you know what? Good for them for, <laughs> for, for making that kind of money. I just, I, I wish that I could put, you know, I, I wish that to phrase it in a way that's, how I'm thinking. I wish that I could live in, in a place where I'm not putting my every little being of my body into my career and and getting the same results, you know? But I am. I'm getting the same results as as someone who might not be. And and that's not to to say people aren't I don't really know the ins and outs of OnlyFans it's it's not really my realm it's not where I find myself and that's okay <laughs> yeah. um and for some people it is I just think the difference in what you put in versus what you put out but what, what you get out in different career paths is very interesting in society today right so again uh as I said on the first episode of this podcast um the i'm not going to criticize your approach on it per se but i will say that i made my stance very clear on moral relativism and i think that i'm not trying to say that you're promoting a moral relativistic approach to it but by saying that like what other people do is none of your business and therefore you don't really care um i would say that um and again on the first episode i quoted robert bork because i thought it was a really good reference by saying that like you know no one should act as if they don't belong to a society because in a society where people don't act as if they where people act as if they don't belong to it and are not um morally obligated to abide by the society's rules then there would be no use for law and the law would be that of the jungle so when it comes to certain things um although uh someone having an OnlyFans may have no adverse effect on you in the moment, I think that it will ultimately have an effect on the society in which you live, which does affect you, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that it can be traced, or not traced back, but it, it can kind of circle back down to the fact that uh, the way that OnlyFans has taken a rise, people are finding more solace in becoming sex workers than they are in actually doing legitimate work, like honorable work. And People are realizing that it's easy to to sell images of your body to strangers on the internet than it is to actually do work and to actually put into society what you've been given. Like, I know, I don't know them personally, but I know of several people that went to high schools in the area. Most of them are in nursing school and majority, of, not majority of them, but like a good amount of them have started an OnlyFans account because they were just like, well, I lost my waitress job because of the pandemic. Therefore, I'm going to sell my body on the internet. But like, you know, that that's... When... 
when you take uh, an honorable job, like being a nurse or being a doctor, and you say that you achieve that by selling your body, like to me, it's it's just it's an absolute absurdity to say that that's okay. So my take on sex work, I'm, I'm sorry if we've if I've seems a little out of it she's trying to mouth words to me <laughs> i'm trying to comprehend them um where was i going with this okay so i when writing this question i more or less prompted Alyssa with the the matter of um is is it moral and her and i both reached a consensus of no it's not so but her gripe is a little bit different than mine is her gripe is more so like she's seeing people not she's seeing people not put an ounce of work in. All they have to do is, uh, you know, have sexual encounters with themselves or with others and film it and then they get money for it. Um, and to her, it's a matter of like, I'm not, I don't want to mis misrepresent or mischaracterize like, your stance on it. But, like to me, it sounds like, you know, your gripe with it is like, these people are getting paid an absurd amount of money for doing the bare minimum. And someone like you who's putting in your all to an honorable and dedicated career, it kind of irritates you that um, you know people are of, your, of the same age as you are literally doing the absolute bare minimum and are getting paid for it, whereas you have to work your butt off uh, getting, you know, pretty much as volunteer hours and possibly college credits for an internship just so you can get the job that you've worked for for however many years. My gripe with it more so is it, along, along the same lines, yes. You know, like I can agree with the fact that like, you know, it kind of irritates me that certain people are able to make an X amount of dollars on a site like that where people like myself are genuinely trying to just pick myself. I mean, I'm not... Uh, I'm not I'm not hesitant to talk about like my struggles with school especially at Mercer you know like my, my first couple semesters there I just I hated school I did not want to be there this that whatever and it took me forever to pick myself back up and I'm extremely proud of the the, the place that I'm in now and you know and I said it before and this isn't necessarily having to do with like uh, sex work but like the, the unfairness of seeing people when I was struggling at Mercer, or actually better yet, the unfairness of when I dropped out of Mercer and I was just struggling to find out what exactly it was that I wanted to do and seeing people that I went to high school with who got into a four-year university and are literally paying $40,000 a year just to party on a Tuesday night. Like that irritated me because I'm just like, how is that fair in any sense of the word? Um, but going back on topic, my gripe with sex work really is the fact that, you know, pornography, for example, back when pornography in the porn industry itself really uh, had a very big introduction in a sense during like the 1960s and 1970s, most feminists were completely against it. They thought that it was detrimental to the movement of feminism and they thought it was extremely harmful to feminism itself. Yet nowadays, starting OnlyFans is viewed as a empowering act one of the most feministic acts you can take because you're reclaiming your sexuality and you're reclaiming your body and things like that but I, I honestly think that 
you know, things like that are of loose moral and are of uh, objectionable character, you know? Yeah. And, and I... <laughs> you seem kind I, of zoned out, I'm telling you. <laughs> I, I'm just thinking. About God. Um, I think we agree on, on our stance on sex work and OnlyFans. Um, I think where we agree is different. I, I personally, like you said, yes, even even if it doesn't really impact me personally and it's not my business, um, eventually it will in terms of financials. And, well, and that also will affect the society in which you live because if sex work is deemed as a, a new form of feminism that is empowering, there's a big possibility that should you have a daughter in the future your daughter may enlist in that in that business yeah and one thing we were talking about the moral versus immoral you know when you look at the definition of morality when you look at the definition of what is immoral it comes down to what are people as a society comfortable with you know when you look at morality it seems like the textbook definition is something that everyone is generally comfortable with so when we look at pornography and OnlyFans. A lot of them wouldn't be comfortable doing with doing things like that. So, from a textbook standpoint, it's just seen as immoral. Um, but where I kind of look at it is on the term of financials because that's what impacts me the right, most. Right, right. Um, but looking at it from a technical standpoint, like I said, it's it's you know if if that's if you can make your money doing that, you know what <laughs> it's it's. Good for you, you know. If I, mm, I disagree. I, I don't say good for you. I say shame on you. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I feel like I'm at a point now where I just, I know my work ethic and I know how much I've worked to be where I am now, and seeing that, seeing that similar salaries or income is coming from something that I'm very proud of and is my work ethic is unmatched to me personally. Well, um, the ego came back. <laughs> it came right back. Um, it's it's a weird thing just seeing how society's moved. Like we said, you know, pornography during the feminist movements in the 70s and 80s, it was seen as degrading. Um, but today it's, it's seen as female empowerment and taking your body back. And um, I just... It's, it's weird to me. Not weird. Weird's not the right word. It's just looking at the way society transitions and what's seen as a reputable income. Um, because at the end of the day, an income's an income, but then we start looking about the morality versus immorality of where that income comes from. You know, if, if, if this is something you're comfortable talking in front of your family about, if this... <laughs> is something that is just a side gig for you or if it's your career but I, I spend a lot of time looking into my career and looking into where I'll be in the future and, and seeing these now over overly saturated platforms like OnlyFans it's interesting to look at it from an outsider perspective who doesn't completely understand it right um, and you you well, you said something that made me think because you said side gig, and I said on the first episode that the the porn industry is not one that you can easily just 
it's not like there's a revolving door where you can just go in and go out as you please you know it's not one of those things where it's like well I can do this for a year and delete it and everything will be gone especially in the age of the internet um, the fact of the matter is is that that's always going to be out there even if you delete all of your content it's still going to be known by a vast majority of people whether or not they subscribe to you or not that that's what you did that's who you were and that was your idea of morality that you thought it was completely okay to do so and my thing is is like I believe in autonomy I believe that if you want to do that then do it however don't try to rationalize to me that it's somehow moral that it's somehow empowering um, and also don't try to convince me that you know uh, someone who dabbled in the porn industry in their younger years during college should be completely expected to not be judged for that when trying to get a career like I'm sure there are plenty of uh, upcoming teacher or people aspiring to be teachers that have an OnlyFans account should those people be allowed to, to teach our youth and especially if they want to be kindergarten and elementary school teachers where teaching kids virtue and morals is of the utmost importance in order to develop them to become good members of society I'm not sure if I want someone with such loose morals to do so I wouldn't want a porn star I wouldn't want a porn star to teach my kids what makes an OnlyFans creator different absolutely nothing other than the budget of the production so if if you're out there and you're thinking about starting OnlyFans but you also are studying to become a teacher Think about what you really want more. Do you really want to be a teacher? Or do you want to be a porn star for the rest of your life? Because at the end of the day, if you're a porn star once, you're a porn star forever. If that's what you did the one time, you're going to be that forever. There's no escaping it. And the fact of the matter is, is like, yes, you know, if that's what you want to do, then do it. But don't expect that people are just going to sit idly by and just say that yeah that's fine that's okay you can do that we'll still take you for our job you know and like and that's what it just and again i said on the first episode where it's like people who want to become nurses you're showing that you have zero regard for your bodily integrity what makes you think that anyone's going to trust you with you with the bodily integrity of another human being like you know that that's just a fact of the matter you know if you want to start an OnlyFans, do it but be dedicated to that career be a porn star you're I you're morally speaking you should not be allowed to do like you should not be allowed to teach our youth you should not be expected to just get away with it in a sense you know what I mean and that goes for both men and women I don't care because both of them are on the platform yeah, I, I mean, when it comes down to it, it's the, the professional aspect of it all. And not just me saying this from a biased perspective, but careers like that are generally generally seen as, as not as professional. So Extremely unprofessional. <laughs> so when people go into other career paths, such as, as you, you said, nursing and teaching, it's something that... There's a certain expect, expectation of professionalism. And good character in those fields. Yeah. That's all I really have. 
for it. Um, <laughs> I can't really think of anything else for it, but just just from my aspect of professionality and the financials behind all of the, and then uh, I guess, you know, going really into, you know, what's moral versus immoral, and we tend to kind of agree on those things, mm-hmm. but really taking a deep dive and looking into it and, and seeing, you know, what society deems as moral and immoral, you know, going beyond the both of us and seeing, is this something that's looked down upon from everyone or some people? And I know that the dancer's different for everyone. Um, well, another thing too, it's like, I think that it's ironic that many of these OnlyFans creators who are, who are female, a lot of them proclaim that they don't want to be sexualized, but I'm just like, well, isn't that ironic that, like, you're literally sexualizing yourself for money? Isn't that the epitome of sexualization? Like, you're doing it to yourself, and then you're, you're going to turn around and try to tell me that it's an empowering moment, and I'm like, it's not. It's self-degrading. It's self-degradation that you are doing, and you're trying to proclaim that as moral. I think that is an absurdity, and I, I wrote an entire opinion piece on this, uh, testing the morality of OnlyFans with Immanuel Kant's uh, Law of Universality, and it just did not, it didn't even come close. Because again, stripping, stripping away the context, all you have is someone recording their sexual encounters, photographing themselves in their, in their intimate moments, and then posting it online for a fee. <laughs> like, right, and then when you come down to stripping all the context, like we said, the textbook definition of morality versus immorality is if the entire public would be willing to do it? And the answer to that question is no. Of course. And not even from a biased perspective from you or I, looking from that textbook definition, that just is what's deemed from from researchers or people who, I don't know, like... Webster's Dictionary <laughs> as, as a moral. Yeah, and like... And I don't mean that in a negative or derogative way. It's just looking at it from a textbook definition of, of immoral versus moral. Right. And like my take on it is like, I'm not saying that like, you know, if you want to be a porn star, then be legally sanctioned. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is if you're going to do it, don't tell me that it's moral because you know damn well that it's not. Don't try to rationalize it somehow. Um... You know, the, the, and again, like I'm sure, because I don't have that opinion piece on me right now, and it's no longer on Medium because Medium is a bullshit website. Um, Medium. If I if I were to publish that on a, in a uh, esteemed paper or something, and go a little bit deeper into my uh, uh, examinations of it and observations of it, I'm sure I would draw a lot of flat or a lot of heat for it, and that's fine because I stand fervent on my position. So. Take it as it is. Okay. <laughs> so, enough of that. I'm sure I'll probably dive deeper into that in another episode. But I've only scratched the surface on my on my views on that shit. <laughs> um, okay. So, going back onto what we disagree on. <laughs> and then we only have two more topics, people. Hang in there. You especially. <laughs> so. All right. So... I understand that you already denounced the idea of utopian society. Right. But you've also said in our discussion pre-recording that you would support a government more so run by algorithm and AI than, than a government than Absolutely. run by people. Not necessarily run by people, but like the one that we have now. So well, why? No, so when I, when I look at that question, I don't see it as a government run by AI. 
I see it as a government run by, by political officials using AI statistics and algorithms to look into the depths of what people want as a society. Um, I see it as rather than, so I like to look at it as disturbing social media, <coughs> disturbing what's, what's going on. And, and I'd like to look at the unbiasedness towards it. And which is what, that's exactly what you get from artificial intelligence is because you could do focus groups, you could do surveys, you could do all of these things and you could ask the American people what they want. But when it comes down to it, there's a bit of biasness in every, in every, every bit of that. Um, so when you look into AI and algorithms and statistics and you're looking into what people are saying on media and social media, which is a big part of what I do for work, you know, I do deep dives um, with an artificial intelligence algorithm with a, with a software and I'm able to pull different data points from specific topics um, and recently I was able to run a study on the you know, previous US election looking at how people looked at each candidate both before and after the presidential and vice presidential debates. Um, so looking, taking a deep dive into that and seeing, you know, how people view the government as positive. What are the, what are the negatives? What are the drivers and barriers for government? It's, it's a lot of things that people will happily say on their social media, they're happily say to each other in the comforts of their own home. But when it comes down to it, and, and I don't necessarily know why, people aren't always happy stating their opinions when it when it comes to the reasons that matter. I'm the outlier in that. <laughs> right. Um, but I think it's interesting because, I, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't like to see a government run by AI. I think that's very, that's very 1984. Um, I think that's yes. very Big Brother is watching. And, and It's very Orwellian and right. a little Marxist. Right. But I would like to see a government run by real human beings, political officials, that incorporate AI and algorithms into their work to get, kind of get like a one-on-one -on -one view of what the people really want. Okay. Well, I mean, could it be argued that it'd be impossible to survey everybody? It could be. Absolutely. That's why, and, that's why the census is a terrible indicator for a lot of the political statistics and social statistics that we get. Right. But when I when I do my data studies for work, I'm able on... on um, and we don't just go on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. We go on anywhere where a public comment can be made. Um, so, yeah, you so, must have a vast inventory of websites to visit. So, yeah, so for, for the elections in general, I want to say pre-debate, pre I was able to reach around 3.4 million data points. And post-debate, for the first presidential debate, I had around 5.6 million data points. And luckily, I don't have to sort through all of those. Our, our algorithm and software is smart enough to, to sort them for us. But it goes into the depths of, of what people like about what each candidate is saying, what people dislike about what each candidate is saying. And, you know, we talked about that coming together and having that comprehension of, of each side. And, and that's when you start to realize this. We've talked about this before. The sides are more similar than we think. It's just the journey of how they want to get there. Right. And I think that's a great indicator of how we could start to get to that that point A to point B and coming up with a consensus of how to do so. That's, you know, that makes everyone at least semi-happy. <laughs> okay. Um, so I disagree. <laughs> I think that... And again, contrary to popular belief, I think that our system of government is the best that we, the best that's ever existed and will ever exist. I mean, you know, 
I believe that we are a nation of laws and not of men, and that's like I, I don't necessarily think that we should replace that with that. You know, like we should be a nation of AI, not of men. You know, but obviously, like I understand that your reasoning behind it. For me, it's just a matter of. I think that the fallibility of of humans is is how we move forward. I'm not sure if that we should rely. I'm not necessarily saying you're saying that we should rely on AI for it, but you should that we should incorporate it, mm-hmm. which I get to an extent. But I would only say that would really be best beneficial in determining uh, favorability of certain policies, you know, uh, or of certain candidates. But I'm not sure if it should be incorporated into our laws per se. You know, I'm not sure if that like we should incorporate algorithm into like how we make policy, um, because at the end of the day, you know, like it's a little antithetical to our system of representation, the represent representative government, because you know we send x amount of representatives from each state, one from each district, and for that matter, like we send them there, knowing damn well they're gonna make mistakes. And that's ultimately what is so great about having the opportunity to either reelect them or replace them with another candidate. I think that if I think that if certain candidates or if everyone were to rely on AI and algorithm, I don't think that we would have as much election turnout as we would. I think that in that sense, democracy would kind of dwindle a little bit, and I think that. Oftentimes, we would just see a lot of career politicians getting in at 25 and leaving in a coffin. Yeah, and, and like I said, on the other side of my argument, there's always that side of AI that's, that kind of takes the humanity away from everything. Right. You know, it takes the emotion away from it. It, it, takes, the, it takes the people out of being people. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've now got robots that do our work and, and tell us what people think. So on the other side of that, I completely get that. Um, I just think it's an important aspect for me, at least. You know, I, th- I think it would be very interesting to see how our government would run if we at least incorporated it to an extent. And I'm not saying fully, but using it and seeing what the AI software can say or what you know algorithms and statistics say about the American population and, and how future political candidates incorporate that into their values, into their campaigns, seeing seeing who people really are and really targeting towards. You know, it, we, we you're learning now that. You can't just target towards one audience in America if you want to win the election. You've got to target to multiple. And knowing your audience is one of the most important things. Right. But in that same vein, wouldn't you, couldn't it be argued that it'd be a little disingenuous of politicians seeking political office to use algorithms to cater to certain audiences? It could be. And like I said, that, that's, that they're, you're always risking taking away the humanity, you know? But I, I just would be interested in seeing where that would go. You know, would it, would it, how much humanity would it take away? I, I like knowing the what ifs behind it and seeing, seeing a real deep dive into it, rather than you know the the superficial campaigns. You know, really targeting toward towards an audience and you know exactly what they're saying. You know what their drivers are. You know what their barriers are. Looking at the deep dive of it, you know, what age ranges, what gender, what ethnicity, what cultures are, are more drawn, drawn towards different political structures and, and government. I think knowing those aspects are very important. And I, I, by no means do I want to take away the, the humanity of politics. <laughs> right. But I think knowing those things is important and at least having some sort of, of understanding of that through artificial intelligence and big data 
could be a very interesting path in the future. Okay. Now, we all know that technology is um, something that people can manipulate because certain algorithms, for example, can silence a, like a sectioned off part of the population, give more leverage to other sections. So like I can use the Instagram algorithm, for example, how horrible that is, how it switched from chronological order to, well, it's based off of, you know, like you're going to see posts that Instagram would think that you would like to see. And I think that, you know, if that were to translate into our politics, I'm not sure how that would fare out. I think that would more so lead to a majority rule or an, an oligarchy for that matter. So for me, that's really where it kind of comes down to, because I feel like if, if everybody were to simply rely on statistics, which are fallible by all means, everything in, in the world is fallible, um, in regards to information at least, uh, I think, I'm not sure, like, do you think that the, the, do you think that a system of government that relies or at least incorporates to some extent algorithms and artificial intelligence, do you think that that would be somehow antithetical to the system of, gov the system of government that was intended by the founders and that has been the longest standing form of government in all of human history? Do you think that, that could possibly derail us a little bit? It could, you know, it's always, there's, there are always the what ifs behind it. Um, but like I said, even introducing it slightly could be very interesting towards political campaigns in the future. Um, I think big, big data and Instagram have very different algorithms, whereas Instagram tailors towards the users mm -hmm. and big data tailors towards the um, the overall message that's being put out there. Um, I think that Instagram's algorithm, you know, it just it's it's for the sole purpose of liking pictures and, and content. Whereas big data goes deeper and sorts it out into positives, negatives, neutrals, drivers, barriers, you know, different sort of categories, age ranges, cultures, things like that. Right, you obviously you obviously know more about it than I do, so that's why I'm asking <laughs> these questions. Right, right, yeah. And I, I think there, there are always those possibilities, you know? I just, I think as someone who's very data-driven, I think it would be interesting to see that data from, from just the average American voice, you know? The people who don't really get to get their voices out there, seeing that being incorporated somehow, even if it's in the most minuscule sense, just knowing that, seeing what happens, you know? Seeing, seeing what happens when those data points are incorporated into potentially the next political campaign. Okay. And it's not saying that it, it could work out amazingly or that it will work out terrible. I'm just, interesting to, I'm just interested to see how it would play out, and I think it could potentially be beneficial. I think that if we were to test it out, I think it'd be a good test in uh, local elections. Right. You know, like maybe for city council or something right. like that. I think that'd be a good way to test out that theory. However, obviously it would take a different, I'm sure it would take a different route on the grand, on the grand stage of a national election or even a gubernatorial election. Um, my thing is with it, it's, um, when it comes to artificial intelligence, I also think that it's a little scary in the sense that we don't know how deep 
artificial intelligence can get into an individual's information, not necessarily stealing credit card information, but like, personally, if artificial intelligence were to know my personal interests and to know, like, you know, like, things that I'm interested in that, like, only my friends know or something like that, or, like, lifestyle habits or things like that, I feel like if artificial intelligence were to take that and report it back to the government, I would feel as if there's an invasion of privacy there. Already do though. Well, to what extent though? I mean, not to a to an extent that's life changing, but but all of your anything that you're putting out on the internet, what you're googling, what you're what you're searching, advertisements, different things like that. Um, right. Well, that's a public domain. <laughs> right, right, right. But there's even those arguments now that like if you say certain things near your phone, you'll start to get advertisements for it. But everything that you're already putting out into the public domain is is being used, you know, for your advertisements, for marketing experts, for companies, for brands. Um, okay. So yes, I, I know what you're saying, and I know I know that you feel that there's that invasion of privacy aspect. But I'm talking about in the superficial sense that you're just voicing your opinion online about government and how you feel about it. It being and it being incorporated through an AI algorithm to how people might campaign towards you in the future. Okay. Um, now, we understand how um, trends happen on Twitter. You know, all it takes is X amount of people to say a certain thing for it to get trending. Right. Could it also be true that if we were to base... Uh, the AI into our government in that it takes political opinions being voiced on Twitter or elsewhere in the social media aspect. Um, couldn't that put a heavy thumb on the scale in favor of one person to another? Because it's arguably, I think, I'm not sure if there's been um, research done on it, but I think the majority of Twitter users are liberal. And the majority of conservatives usually are not on social media. Couldn't that also create an imbalance in representation? It could, but I think one of the great things about AI is you could break it down in from political party. You know, you could say that you have 1.5 million data points from liberals and only 600,000 from conservatives, and you can you can almost start to see the reasons behind. You know, that's that's what I like. You know, when I start to look at data and and analytics. I look at, you know, if there's one target audience that's speaking more fluently on these topics, why is that? What are they saying that's resonating with the public so much that's speaking them to cause out and causing this chain reaction of speaking up? And on the other side of that, on the more conservative side, if, if more conservatives aren't being publicly vocal about their opinions, why is that? And, you know, what, what drives them or deters that from a candidate? And I would say my biggest concern with something like that would be the the extreme possibility, but also extremely possible possibility that the the data could easily be manipulated, you know, because oftentimes another thing too about sites like Twitter, um, I think it's hasn't necessarily been proven, but it's been observed that negative reactions to things garner more uh, attention and are also more prominent than our positive reactions because people get more likes and retweets from calling something out as opposed to agreeing with something you know 
So I think that if the algorithms and the artificial intelligence were to report things like that back to the government, there would be more negative feedback than there would be positive feedback, even on things that are great. Yeah, and I, I think there's a system that would need to be figured out, especially so the data can't be skewed or biased or manipulated. Right. Um, but I think in the perfect world, if um, we were able to find a system where that were not possible, and it was just pure, pure unbiased data from the public that was unmanipulated and, and so forth, I know that's, that's a hard thing to do, but if, if there were a possibility to do it, especially with the um, advances in technology nowadays, I... And for governmental reasons, I think I don't have a doubt in my mind that it's possible. I just think that looking into that data and looking into those analytics could potentially be beneficial for candidates, at least. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and one thing I wanted to point out when you were saying um, that the <laughs> our algorithms and AI already kind of like listen into like what you're saying and gear your advertisements towards that. Um, I think when it comes to the government utilizing it, I think that there could be a lot of constitutional issues raised because it's technically within the scope of um, uh, a business's uh, prerogative to do what they can to market their product as best as they can without obviously breaking any laws. But I think... Um, if the government were to begin using those tactics, I think that a constitutional question could be raised of uh, the um, the Fifth Amendment's right to privacy, or at least right to you know not be observed or spied on more or less by your government. I think that there there could be a lot of issues raised about that, and I think that um, it could also. I'm, I know you're probably going to say it's possible, but. Another concern of mine would be how, like, what limits would the government have on that? Like, would they be able to spy on, and this could also be referenced going back to the Patriot Act of 2001, where, you know, could the government possibly use that to uh, spy on potential criminals? Yeah. You know, I think I think especially with, with AI and big data, anything is possible. Right. And I'm just looking at it from a, from a potentially utopian perspective, which I, we've already agreed is not the best idea. But I think looking at it from when we're, if we're able to create a system where there are limitations and people are still able to have their privacy, but understand that their their voices politically can be heard and they can be understood even though they feel like their feels if their voice is so small in, in their community and their society there's a chance through big data and ai that they could be heard um and there definitely needs to be limitations you know there, there can definitely be some constitutional violations through that i think it's just all creating a system that's fair and beneficial for both parties mm. Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely pros and cons um, in regards to weighing the possibilities. Uh, it obviously, hasn't been in practice yet, so we don't know what the extent of those pros and cons are. But um, you know, it's definitely something that would be interesting to see, uh, at least tested on a on a local level. But you know, yeah, I think it'd be an interesting, interesting um, way of approaching politics 
Right, and, and who's to say? It could go amazing, it could go horrible. <laughs> but I think that the potential for it is strong. Right, that's fair. Okay, so last topic of the night. Everyone can take a sigh of relief. <laughs> um, so I, I love talking about this because it, I love the fact that modern philosophers have answered the question as to what you know like what the meaning of life is and um earlier i was playing Alyssa the clip of my tape my uh don't want to say speech but my um my answering questions from instagram users on um on what the meaning of life was and i i don't think you necessarily got the full explanation to it so let me just kind of like run it down a brief um, so like I said, the meaning of life is responsibility, and but it's a three-legged stool of responsibility, which means that all three legs have to be functioning and have to be utilized in order for it to, to hold up, and it has to, all three have to be in practice in order for the entire structure to not collapse. Um, so the three-legged stool is the responsibility uh, for yourself, to yourself, and to others, but not for others. Um, and the not for others is a big caveat, and I'll explain. Um, so the responsibility for yourself means that you need to be responsible for your actions. You need to be responsible um, for the choices that you make, the beliefs that you hold. Um, you need to be responsible for uh, the life decisions that you make, or career path, things like that. Um, you need to be responsible to yourself to make sure that you're taking care of yourself. You need to be responsible um, to yourself in that you decide to not become addicted to opioids. Um, you need to be responsible to yourself that you are maintaining uh, a job that has some purpose or that you are trying to better yourself or that you are trying to um, ensure that your future is even better than your present and that your present is even better than your past. So that's a responsibility to and for yourself. Now the responsibility uh, to others but not for others is a little paradoxical because you are responsible to how you treat people. You're responsible to um, how your behaviors affect other people. And that's kind of like where the responsibility for and for yourself and to others kind of intertwine because your personal actions are going to have some adverse effects on other people. Um, so that's where the responsibility for or for yourself and to others does have a have a big um, connection, and you're responsible to others in that you know don't kill people, you know don't don't um, it's not a matter of don't because it's not necessarily a, a prescribatory uh, philosophy, but it's more so just it's just be mindful of how you treat people. It's, Make sure that you treat everyone with kindness, that you are doing the best to make sure that other people are okay. Make sure that other people are, you know, like not being negatively impacted by what you do or things like that. But you're not responsible for others in that we've had this discussion plenty of times where, you know, you could try your hardest being responsible to another person and you can try your hardest to make sure that their mental health is okay. But if that person ultimately kills themselves, you're not to blame because you were responsible to them, you did your best, but you're not responsible for the action that they ultimately took. Um, you know, like, 
we can say that uh, Donald Trump, for example, um, he is responsible to his constituents and to his voters especially, but he's not responsible for the actions that happened um, at the Capitol on, on January 6th. He's not responsible for that. The people that committed that act are responsible for that. Now, granted, if there's a call to action, that's a different story, but he, there was no call to action. He was, he was you know, simply speaking bullshit for the most part. He didn't tell anyone to go breach the Capitol and invade the, the Senate and the House. You know, that was that was the crux of his um, his part in that whole debacle. Um, so that's ultimately the three-legged stool of responsibility when it comes to the meaning of life. Because, again, like, you know, responsibility is what keeps us going. It is, you know, like, if... And like I said on the first episode, if the meaning of life were happiness, then people would lose meaning of life when happiness was completely devoid of their life. You know, like I know people who have lost parents and then lost their jobs. Like what happiness can come from that situation? But it's the responsibility of, I might have lost my parents and I might have lost my job, but I'm responsible to myself and for myself to get another job. I'm responsible to the family that's still here, and I'm responsible to, you know, the rest of the people that are in my life, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's ultimately what it comes down to, and I know you have a little bit of a different take on it, so feel free to share that. For me, (laughs) I I am a self-proclaimed optimist, I would say. (laughs) Where, for me personally, and this doesn't have to be for everyone, but my my meaning of life is living to my fullest potential, you know, being the best person that I could be. And does that include responsibilities? Absolutely. Does that include responsibilities to me, to my family, to my friends? Yeah. I just It's just for me, it's waking up every morning and knowing that I'm going to do everything in my power today to be a good person, to work hard, to, to make myself better than I have been. You know, I don't, I don't, I see competition as a, as a very figurative meaning. I, I think the only people that people should ever be competing with is themselves. And, and for me, that's, that's the meaning of life to me, is, is competing with myself so that every day I am a better person than I was the day before. You know, being, being kind, being fun, being, being carefree. Not to, not to interrupt, but that reminds me of the Jordan Peterson quote where he says, don't compare yourself to who someone else is today, compare yourself to who you were yesterday. Right, and that's, and that's what I try to do. I just, I feel that People spend so much of their lives, especially today where social media is glorified and, and Instagram models and this <laughs> and that, people spend so much of their lives now comparing themselves to other people and not understanding that their life is, is so unique and different and, and that their journey is, is amazing, you know? And, and going back to that, not everyone is born into the same sort of aspects that everyone else, ha- else has, you know, having that potential. But I think what you do with that is what defines your meaning of life. You know, if, if your meaning of life is taking advantage of that completely, then that's what it is for you. And if it's not, then that's, that's your meaning of life. It's just taking it day by day. But for me, at least, when I look at my meaning of life, it's, it's waking up every morning and it's just, it's being who people thought I wouldn't be. Mm. You know, it's, it's being better than 
who I thought I would be. You know, I, I, I wake up every morning and I set goals for myself. I, I'm one of those people that have a 30, 60, 90 day plan. You know, I set five goals for 30, 60, and 90 days in advance and, and try to achieve all of those. Um, is that crazy? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but for me personally, when I look at life, it includes all those responsibilities that you touch on and it includes, includes being that that responsive having that responsibility for yourself and for others but it's it's just for me knowing that I'm waking up every single morning and just being the best version of myself and and not caring what other people think you know caring what I think at the end of the day mm-hmm. okay so you would argue more so uh, I feel like you and I more or less agree on this in a sense because everything that you said kind of although not explicitly they have touched on like you know that three-legged school responsibility mm-hmm. um obviously you and I agree that we're not responsible for other people's actions right you know um we've had this discussion plenty of times and I honestly I really don't see a point to which that we disagree um because I mean, obviously, you have, I think you have a heavier emphasis on the responsibility to yourself mm-hmm. and for yourself because you obviously said, like, you know, you're very self-goal-oriented where you're, you know, just working to better yourself and, you know, that's what your emphasis is on. And there's obviously nothing wrong with that. I, I think that there's just a balance between all three of them. Sometimes one has a heavier emphasis than the other, you know, like, again, on a stool, we put more weight on one side than we do on the other sometimes, but it's just how it is. So, yeah, I think we pretty much agree on that. Um, obviously, um, I'm sure that the meaning of life is something I'm probably going to keep pondering on, and I'll keep re-answering, even though it's redundant as it sounds. I'll keep going <laughs> for I'll keep I'll keep answering. I'll put it on every freaking podcast episode I ever come up with. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, because it, it's just a very existential question. It's a question that, funny enough, it's like, it's a stereotype. Anytime someone says that they're into philosophy, they all, someone will always ask them, like, oh, what's the meaning of life then? And oftentimes, you know, people kind of come up short. They're just like, well, I don't know. But, like, you know, like, I think the meaning of life isn't really hard to figure out. I think it's a matter of, and I don't think that the meaning of life is based off of a subjective uh, notion where it's like, well, it's a matter of what your meaning of life of your life is. It's like, no, it's like, in general, you know, a universally applied meaning and everyone has responsibility mm-hmm. no matter what situation you're in you right. know starving kids in africa have a responsibility i would say i would say life without responsibility is, is arguably chaos of course and you know that's one thing that i said in one of my responses was that like you know if we live life without responsibility and merely pursue happiness which is probably the only alternative answer to what the meaning of life is ultimately what happens is it'll just devolve into hedonism and that hedonism will prove to be short-lived because people would realize that, well, temporary happiness doesn't garner permanent happiness, and they're going to just continue to seek out self-fulfilling pleasures. And ultimately what will happen is that you're going to be completely devoid of, of meaning because eventually these things will stop making you happy, and then you're just going to become a nihilist. And a nihilism, yeah. nihilism just leads to chaos. Right. So that's why you know, the responsibility aspect is extremely important. And like I said, you know, um, uh, 
responsibility can exist without happiness, but happiness cannot or cannot exist without responsibility. You know, like things that you're responsible for make you very happy. Your job, for example, school. You know, same thing with me. Uh, for some people, it's taking care of their family. For other people, it's taking care of their dogs. So it's just like that's where it comes from. You know, if I wasn't responsible to my dogs, like they wouldn't make me happy. <laughs> they might, but you know, it's just, it's a sheer satisfaction. It's just like I actually like I have to care for this thing, and like that's what you know make, gives my love for it. And the one caveat for not being responsible for others is when you have children. Because you are responsible for how your kid acts sometimes. Right. As uh, up until a certain point, of course. You know, I don't think that parents of school shooters are responsible for that shooting. No, actually, interesting enough, I, was, I, I watch a lot of TED Talks. Um, ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's, um, his name was, one of the, I was watching a, a TED Talk of one of the Columbine shooters' mothers. Ah. And she was talking about what it's like to be the mother of, of someone who did this. And she said the million-dollar question is that people always ask her is, how didn't you know? And and she went into all these details on, on how it just came out of nowhere to her and, and how uh, Dylan Klebold, it was Dylan Klebold's mother. Um, yeah, Sue Klebold did a TED Talk on, on what it's like being the mother of a school shooter that ended in, in a lot of people losing their lives and being injured. And, and arguably started a culture of mass shootings Right, absolutely. And, and she even goes into that, uh, about the domino effect of mass shootings after that, and then how she almost, in a way, feels responsible, even though she shouldn't. Um, but she goes into a lot of detail on, on what it's like raising someone, and then you try to do your best as a parent, and then you realize they're not at all who you thought they were. Um, so she goes into all the details on that, but it's, and I'm not saying that, you know, people ever raise their kids to, to be <laughs> Um, but it, it's just an interesting thing seeing, you know, at what point in life do children stop relying on their parents for values and morals and start to develop mindsets of their own? And what do those mindsets consist of? Of course, of course, you know, and there, there's a lot of unanswered questions when it comes to things like that, because it's like, it's unfathomable, like to get inside the mind of some of someone who did something that no one else with a rational mind could think of doing. Right. You know? So, yeah. I mean, and those are questions that are yet to be answered. But I think at the end of the day, it's, you know, those are outliers. Those are things that are very hard to not only predict, but to also prevent. And majority of the time, there's no outstanding reason as to why it happened other than the person was just driven to do that for whatever reason. You know, and like I said, a lot of the, and especially in cases of the Columbine shooters, because they take their own life, we can never really ask them, why right. did you do it? And oftentimes, they don't, they don't even answer if, if they stay alive for it. They're just like, it's because I wanted to. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. not, that's not a substantial reason, but, you know. But, yeah, you know, I think we agree for the most part on the meaning of life, even though you won't say explicitly, but. That we agree? No, that, that the meaning of life is responsibility. <laughs> no, I, I don't think the meaning of life is responsibility. I think the meaning of life is living to your fullest potential. I think it incorporates responsibility. Okay, so in part we agree. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. Uh, well, this has been a great show, to say the <laughs> least. Um, so yeah, so that, that does it for episode three. We covered a lot of good stuff, so good job hanging in there. 
Yeah. The wine's kind of like kicking yeah. in a little bit. But. Thanks, thanks for having me on your lovely podcast in this lovely room with this lovely wine. <laughs> it's just Cabot Riesling. It's not that lovely. Uh, I love Cabot, though. Cabot's so good. Yeah, this is a uh, this is officially turned into a sponsorship for Cabot. <laughs> we do, like, non-official sponsorships. The first episode we ever did, we did a Hoagie Havens one. Like, really? Shout out. Yeah, I, we... feel like, I feel like you and I drink enough Cabot to... To be some brand ambassadors at this point. Probably. Like Probably. like Jared from Subway. <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa. No, whoa. no, no, no. No, without the controversy. Without the controversy. There are so many other examples you could no, use. No, no, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> no, without the con- No, stop. Jesus. <laughs> Alright, it's time it's time for me to go to bed. <laughs> no. Like Zach and Alyssa from Cabot, but without the without any sort of controversy, without any sort of anything wrong. You know what I mean? <laughs> Other than my controversial opinions on some things. Right. <laughs> Jesus God. I, I, I just, don't, just like, I don't just, support Jared from Just Subway. like Jared from Subway, yeah. That's <laughs> the first thing that came to mind. <laughs> he could have been like, oh, that guy from the Horizon. Like, can you hear me now? Someone like that. Damn. Yeah, sorry. Jake from State Farm. There you go. Sorry. There you go. All right. Well, clear, clearly that should call it a night. <laughs> yeah, if, if that doesn't end it, I don't know what will. The show started up here. It kind of just. <sighs> yep. It's it's been a it's been a steady decrease. It's and... okay. It's okay. Uh, well, yes, we'll have to do it again because you still owe me some debates on some very controversial and pressing issues. I will debate you every day for the rest of my life. That's fine. <laughs> That's fine because again, you know me. I I love to debate. Alright, well, uh, stay tuned for episode four. I think Ryan's going to try to come back at some point. I don't know what the hell he's doing. Um, he, te- he texted me today about doing episode two, and I was like, dude, we already did episode two, and we're about to do episode three. <laughs> and he's like, oh, okay. I'm like, yeah, okay, so get over here. What the fuck are you doing, man? Anyway, um, so yeah, thanks everyone for listening. I'm sure all one of you is great. <laughs> and uh, yeah, catch you on the next episode. And Hopefully, Alyssa will be back sometime soon for that, for the later episodes. Maybe. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, have a good night, everybody. Thank you for listening.